Hey friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to let you know that Easy Expense is hiring and looking for people like you, my dear listener, to join their team. This company was started by a friend of mine and he's building a software company focused on being the best place to work as a climber. Their office is based in Squamish, British Columbia. You'll get to work with other climbers. With flexible hours, you can get outside after work when the weather is nice. There's world-class mountain biking in Squamish as well. And it's a hybrid of in-person and remote working. What is Easy Expense? Easy Expense is building a tool to automate bookkeeping for small businesses. Think QuickBooks, but more dialed for small business owners and entrepreneurs. And they are looking for engineers who have experience working with React Native, React JavaScript, or Node JavaScript, and Google Cloud. I have no idea what any of that means, but if you do, and if you have experience with any of those things, you are probably right for the job. Visit easy-expense.com for more details about the company and use the link right there in your podcast app or in the show notes to apply. That's easy-expense.com for details and use my link to apply. This episode is brought to you by Chalk Cartel, my favorite chalk company by far. Here's the deal. Chalk matters, and you owe it to yourself to get the good stuff. Luckily, with Chalk Cartel, you can get the best chalk on the market without breaking the bank. Chalk Cartel sources the highest quality magnesium carbonate you can buy. No fillers, no impurities, and no bogus proprietary claims. This stuff has been independently tested in the lab side-by-side other top brands of chalk, and it's exactly the same stuff or better. They also use eco-friendly packaging because they care about the environment, so you can't go wrong. If you need a fix, head over to chalkcartel.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next purchase of pure, uncut, high-performance climbing chalk. That's chalkcartel.com and use code NUGGET for 20% off excellent climbing chalk. Chalk Cartel. Great chalk, no bullshit. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, recording another intro from my balcony here in Switzerland. Maybe you can hear the birds. There's always birds chirping here. It's uh, it's kind of amazing. Sitting out, drinking my coffee, recording this on Monday morning, June 12th, about to put out this episode. My guest today is Louis Parkinson. Louis is based in London. And if you don't know who this guy is, he's Captain Cutloose on Instagram. Maybe you'll recognize that name. But if you haven't seen this guy climb, and if you're not familiar with him, he is definitely one of the best in the world when it comes to modern competition style climbing. He's really good at flowy coordination moves, dynamic movement, and he's really good at teaching it as well. And we spent a lot of time talking about that in this conversation among many other things. This was an awesome one. I love talking to Louie. He's got tons of energy. He was just dropping really good information the entire time, and he was super fun to talk to. So I really hope you guys enjoy this one and take a lot away from it. We recorded this one at the end of March, so quite a while ago. At one point, he mentions that Burden of Dreams was close to getting its second ascent, and that is because we recorded this before Will Bosey repeated Burden of Dreams and before I recorded with Will. So I've been moving some episodes around. This one didn't feel as timely as some others, but it was one of my favorites. Please enjoy this wide ranging and very energetic conversation with Louis Parkinson. Cause, 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 no one can do it. 
we do it. Hang on, hang on, I'm here. Hey, there we go. Hey, Stephen, how you doing, man? Hey, good, Louie. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? No, 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 man, I'm having a, oh, I've got a manic day of um, just meetings in loads of different places, bouncing back and forth between different centers, and then I'm going to get to, after this, I'm going to go back to another center, and I'm just coaching and climbing for the rest of the evening, so it's been a nice day. Busy, but nice. How about nice. you? What are you up to? Nice. I'm just waking up. It's nine o'clock in the morning over here, so I'm just drinking coffee and still... Uh, Still waking up a little bit. My brain's a little... Chin, chin. I've got my... Uh, oh, what have, tenzing what have you got? Uh, what so is I'm that? Caffeine train as well. What are you drinking? Uh, I've got a glass of... Oh, it's... Uh, maybe it's not in the US. It's uh, it's an energy drink company I work with, but it's like... Oh, okay. It's shit. Oh. <laughs> we're not swearing, are we? You can swear. Yeah, you can absolutely swear. <laughs> yeah, fucking delicious. But we're nice. not, but I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm not actually swearing on the podcast. We're, we're going to cut this bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if you want to. Well, swearing is totally fine. Swearing is totally allowed. Are we in your house right now? Where are we? Yeah, uh, we're in um, we're in my house. Uh, I live in a flat uh, in North London. Uh, lived in London basically my whole life, other than uh, when I went to university in Leeds and spent most of my time there, just climbing the whole time anyway. Uh, and now, yeah, living back in London again, which is uh, we we're catching up last time. It's not great if you want to go climbing outdoors. If you want to climb indoors, it's a very good place to be. Uh, so pretty well set up for all my coaching and training and all this sort of stuff. Just not as much outdoor climbing as I'd like. Yeah, you know, that fascinates me about you. You really seem like a passionate gym climber. I mean, I know you compete a little bit as well, but I find that really interesting. Did you ever consider moving to Sheffield? You know, I, I read like Jerry Moffat's book and Ben Moon's book, and that was the place to be and, and still seems to be for a lot of the outdoor-focused rock climbers in the UK. Um, was that ever a consideration at all, or, or um... yeah, and actually, um, like, I'm still kind of semi planning on doing this. I've never, uh, kind of as you say, yeah, I've always only ever been an indoor gym climber as like my main access to climbing. Um, I actually count myself as very, very lucky that um, indoor climbing exists because I don't think I ever would have had any reason to get involved with it if it weren't for there being indoor climbing centers running birthday parties for kids so yeah i never would have discovered if it weren't if it weren't for indoor climbing centers and uh if my only access to climbing was going outdoors i would not have really much opportunity to practice at all so um you, you must love it just as far i mean it's almost like a diverging sport and you must just absolutely love the gym i mean to to see what you've done with it to see how far you've taken it to see how you've integrated it into your entire life and now it's the work that you do and you teach it um yeah i mean w would you would you trade it all to just go outside all the time or so that that is kind of what i'm thinking is like on the one hand exactly as you say like man i love climbing indoors yeah it's, that's uh, great <laughs> compared to like when i go climbing outdoors and i'm like oh man it's it's cold and <laughs> the rocks are sharp and oh i could land on that tree root that sucks whereas indoors i'm like I've got total freedom. I can f fall off the boulder in any direction I like. It's warm <laughs> and it's cozy, and there's millions of climbs for me to do. Whereas otherwise, I have to like pick up my boulder pad and hike between all the different boulders. Oh, how inconvenient! Um, <laughs> indoor climbing, yeah, I, I really like it. I think it is kind of. I, I think climbing very much has this culture that like indoor climbing. No, no, no. That's like for practice. Outdoor climbing is proper climbing. That's what the proper climbing is. And I don't do much proper climbing. I just climb indoors the whole time. Um, occasionally, I do get to go outdoors, and I really, really like it. It doesn't really feel like my comfort zone, but I, I enjoy being out of my comfort zone. So I, I like going on, on outdoor trips. Um, 
but yeah, I'm, I would love to have an opportunity in my life where I'm living in a beautiful place, not maybe not in London, where I've got regular access to out, access to outdoor climbing, and I can actually really get stuck in properly. Because um, mm. despite having climbed for almost two decades now, I don't think I've ever had an outdoor trip of longer than a week, maybe two weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, I know, right? That's crazy. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, it is what it is, but it's it's just, uh, I, I said, wow, kind of thinking about the things that you've been able to accomplish on really short trips. I mean, that's that's so impressive to me. For me, you know, the hardest things I've ever done on on the rock, on boulders, these things take me weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, like ele- like some of the hardest things I've done, 10, 11 climbing days over the course of a month of very consistent, try- you know, consistently yeah. trying it or multiple seasons or things like that. So I'm so impressed that you've shown up on some of these short trips to Switzerland and done such hard things. So Man, that's, that's yeah. really kind of you. The, the gym can get you to a really high level of rock climbing. I think that's the takeaway that, there. That's the, that's the benefit of all, the, of all this indoor climbing. Yeah, I'm uh... When I was saying, oh, one of the huge benefits of climbing indoors is the volume of climbing you can do in a comparatively short amount of time. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what crag you could go to outdoors where you actually have the option of doing like a hundred boulders over the course of two hours. Like it wouldn't be possible unless you do the same one over and over again. Mm. <laughs> it's not that great for practice. Yeah, I mean, it's helpful, but it's really, really good to have that variety of movement and different hold types and different setters and all this sort of stuff. It, yeah, it means you can get a lot of practice in really, really quickly. Yeah, and then when I go on these fairly short trips, I'm very, very used to the pace of climbing a lot of volume uh, on a daily basis. So I can do a lot of climbing on a fairly short trip. That being said, though, I would really love to find out what's possible for me if, mm. like you've done in the past, I actually get to like stick with a project for a few sessions rather than just like a couple of visits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, hoping to find time for that in my life at some point. I'm still um, uh, trying to find the balance between work and life and my own training and competing and all of these different things that I'm trying to keep on top of at once. Looking forward to a point in the future where I just get to chill out, focus on my own training, smash some hard stuff outdoors. That'd be <laughs> nice, man. So, yeah, I, still, I, I dream That's about cool. it. I don't know exactly when I'm going to do it, um, but definitely something I'd, I'd really like to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Newer newer listeners might not know this, but I live in a van full time for the last few years and have been traveling and I mostly rock climb. I spend most of my time traveling around the States and chasing warm weather and climbing outside. And um, I learned this really interesting lesson in Waco Tanks this winter. I was down there um, starting in December, climbed there through February, and I got injured on my second climbing day. I had a partial bicep tendon tear on like oh, December man. 8th or something. Um, it, it's all fine. I'm, I'm back to 100% now. But, um, you know, the first six weeks after that injury, after taking some rest, was just a lot of gym time. There's a nice gym there in El Paso yeah. now called Sessions Climbing Gym for people that are passing through. It's great. And I just climbed in the gym a lot, you know, slowly, you know, first day, maybe climbed up to like V3 or four, but only on vertical and slabby and technical things, like not weighting the the bicep, um, worked my way up on that and then slowly started climbing on steeper things and was just doing way more volume consistently than I usually do on a rock climbing day. Cause in, you know, I, I love to go around and like tick all the boxes in the guidebook and try to see how many boulders I can do. But just the time it takes to move the pads and to hike to different spots. I just very rarely do that these days consistently, you know, for like a whole month or for for six weeks. And I felt like I was moving so well after those six weeks and just flowing and relaxed and comfortable and, um, and then had a really great 
final month in Waco and sent a bunch of hard things for me. And I kind of realized like, maybe there's something to this. Like I live on the road and have the opportunity to, to rock climb all the time, but maybe I should combine more gym volume time. Um, and I kind of, I kind of think that next season I might go back there and have like a first month where I spend a lot of time in the gym and just go outside on my hard projecting days and, you know, go yeah. try something hard in Waco and then come back to the gym and cruise and, and do volume. So it's a good method. Man. I think the, um, Obviously, the aspects you lose from outdoor climbing are the magic of being out there in nature, actually going for like a hard challenge, which isn't going to get reset. So it's almost like um, sending an outdoor boulder is like is like earning a trophy that other people have earned as well. And you're like, yeah, I've, I've yeah. had that experience. I can talk about that with you as well. Don't really get that stuff so much with indoor climbing. Like Obviously, yeah, you can talk with other climbers in the gym about, oh, you've tried that P72. Isn't that fun? Wow, great. But it's not quite the same as talking about the shared experience of having gone out hiked around through the nature, found this hard boulder, slowly worked out the secrets and sending it and all that sort of stuff. So there's, yeah, a fair amount of magical experiences that make up um, going from the outdoors. So you lose that climbing indoors, but at the benefit of getting a huge amount of convenience for your training, you get to still hang out and socialize with loads of people, share ideas on different borders, probably at a faster rate and more frequently than you would if you were climbing outdoors. And then, yeah, like we say, the enormous benefit of being able to do hundreds of climbs. And I'm glad I've got you psyched on the idea as well that oh, having to pick up my boulder pad and walk <laughs> to another boulder, ugh, I hate it. How horrible for me to do It's not that big a deal. But um, overall, I think having been yeah, a city boy who lives in London and isn't, oh, yeah, I'm fine outdoors, but um, I'm not like, I wouldn't consider myself like a really experienced outdoor climber. Um, so yes, being in my comfort zone in indoor gyms, very, very nice, easy way to train. Strongly recommend you get very good at moving. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're such a great example of that. What has kept you in London for the last 20 years? Mm. I guess, um, I guess a mix of things. Um, it's, it's where I've always lived and I, I don't know, uh, you, you've been to London, right? No, I haven't. I've, I've never been. What did you make of it? <laughs> Oh, you haven't been to London? Never been. So yeah. I go back and forth, as I'm sure everyone else who lives in London does, on, on the one hand going, man, what a cool place to live. It's so it's so busy. There's so much going on. It's like one of the biggest cities in the world. And then other times I go like, oh, man, everyone's like so stressed and angry all the time. And it's grey and there are no trees. And it's so back and forth on how much I actually like living here. Overall, I think I, I really, really love it here. Um, a lot of my social life is here, my friends, my family. Um, and then it's just like, yeah, slowly building my business in London that then has me like going to centers a lot and do, doing all my coaching, which I really, really enjoy. Um, so, um, I think it's just a slow process of, yeah, having got more and more deeply involved in the London climbing scene, then making my business pretty London based has meant that I'm also in London most of the time. Um, and I really, really like it here. But that being said, like maybe if I lived elsewhere, maybe I'd really like it there too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so yeah. far, just um, it's it's the way life has gone. I, yeah, I really like yeah. being in London. Uh, That's great. But uh, we'd be keen to actually find time to explore a little bit more. So I've been saying that for like 20 years. And I'm sure <laughs> so, who knows? Oh, you must like it if you're still there. Louis, can you describe a week in the life of, of Louis Parkinson? You talked about bouncing around to different <laughs> centers at the start of this conversation, and you've got your business catalyst climbing. But yeah, what what do you do? What What, what does your life look like these days? <laughs> so um not as much um time for my own climbing at the moment as i'd like i maybe get like one session a week for a couple of hours where i get to just go to the gym and do my own thing and i do some conditioning i climb a load of boulders 
Um, that being said, I also do like a lot of climbing while I'm coaching and while I'm training other people. So I get like my own focused climbing time once, maybe twice a week if I'm lucky. Uh, or I keep it as a free time just to like meet up with a friend and go climbing with them for a bit just for like a social thing. I'm quite careful to not have all of my climbing just be work. I want some of it mm. to just be for me, which is quite nice. Uh, I probably do about, I'm trying to work out how many hours of co- like in-person coaching I do per week, maybe like 20 hours or so of like private coaching and teaching junior teams. And I've got a, an adult performance team that I coach on Tuesday evening. So I'm off to go and coach them after this. Um, then I do some remote coaching as well. So I do, um, uh, do some like online training plans. I meet with students over zoom. Um, so that's all my coaching work, but then I've also kind of put myself in the position where I'm supposed to be managing my business and like developing things a little bit. Um, so Catalyst is like a team of coaches, um, but we also do like coach training for uh, for staff at Climbing Walls and all this sort of stuff. Uh, we put on events. We have loads of these different teams that other coaches run. So then I spend a lot of the time per week just like I'm doing now, <laughs> sat on my laptop, having meetings over Zoom. Um, as I'm sure pretty much everyone has in their job, a good portion of my job is just sending and receiving emails so i probably spend a good amount of hours doing that is this interesting for your podcast now it's just me talking about sending emails <laughs> uh, but yeah it's it's kind of a mix of um i do a lot of in-person coaching um i was, I was speaking with my business manager recently and at some point i might need to step back from doing in person quite as much in-person coaching as i do mm. um which i'm actually really resistant to because i love it so much it's the thing that i've been really passionate about for a really long time and I've slowly got like pretty good at it. I really enjoy doing it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I spend possibly more time than I should doing um, doing a lot of coaching sessions. Then a lot of time just on my laptop doing meetings and sending emails. And then uh, a little bit when I've got time of uh, doing my own training or going to competitions occasionally. That used to be a much bigger thing for me. Now I'm, oh man, I'm kind of in this weird place with competitions where I'm still like, I'm still pretty good. I've still got like a shot at doing okay in certain competitions. But I'm definitely not like still at the level of like, I'm, I don't think I'm going to win the national championships or be sent off to like compete in the IFSC anytime soon. But I still kind of feel pressure and expectation to be able to perform at that level. Mm. So um, nowadays, yeah, I go to comps and oh, I realized in one recently, I'd made finals, all very exciting. And then just we were chatting about it and I realized, oh man, not only am I the oldest, I'm the oldest by a decade. In the oh, finals. wow. <laughs> yeah. 16 year olds and 18 year olds and all this sort of stuff. Um, which then has, uh, you don't compete so much, so maybe maybe you don't get this so much, but I have this weird double standard for myself of, okay, so either if I win, shame on me for beating, beating, beating a bunch of young people. That's, that's <laughs> not and if I lose, what are you doing? You got beaten by a bunch of kids? Come on, man. So I'm trying to like get the right sort of balance of expectations when I go to competitions. I actually had a really good time recently uh, going to the Climbing Works International Festival, which is like big, serious competition. And for me, didn't get the best result I've had, but really nice personal progress of I felt like I actually climbed just really freely and really enjoyed being there. I didn't get really frustrated when I fell off stuff. I managed to climb pretty hard and did some cool boulders. So I'm I'm getting to a good place in my competitions at the moment of enjoying it, but not feeling too much pressure to achieve a certain thing. Um, And then I'm trying to think there was one other thing which eats up like a huge amount of time. Oh, YouTube stuff. Yeah, man. Mm. I was trying to remember, like, what else do I do? (laughs) It takes up loads of time. Usually a couple of days a week of um, being on the YouTube grind. Um, I've got a couple of people I work with at Catalyst who help me film a whole bunch of like fun videos that we put out on a weekly basis. 
I've also then got, um, there's a Catalyst online membership uh, via YouTube, where if you sign up as a Catalyst member, it's not very expensive, folks. If you listen to this going, oh, wow, training plans, you can get training plans with Louis and Neil Gresham, who's another very uh, experienced oh, nice. coach. And so every week I put out uh, training plans for the online community. I record videos for that and do a, um, a live session on YouTube. I do too many things. I'm realizing now as I detail <laughs> you all this stuff, when do, when do I sleep? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty eclectic mix of way too many things, all of which I really enjoy. Um, so at some point I might need to like start organizing things a little bit better. But at the moment I'm, I'm actually really enjoying what my work is. I'm really enjoying I – th- I count myself as very, very lucky – um i'm sure you have this as well sometimes running your own business is stressful and has a lot of responsibilities and there are times where you're like man what why am i doing this like this is so stressful and it's it's really hard work and then i think about it going like well, would i rather be in an office wearing a tie no i would not right to climb right. every day and hang out with happy people and it's it's a pretty sweet life yeah, I, I I have those moments sometimes where I'm like, oh man, like it really feels like work today. And then I'm like, oh wait, yeah. it's my job. It's my job. Yeah. It's it's the most fun thing I've ever done. Exactly. And sometimes it feels like work, and that's amazing. You know, that's that's a really lucky yeah. place to be. But yeah, you were talking exactly. about uh, your business coach and feeling a little bit of pressure to pull back from the personal coaching. And um, I think that's such an interesting and challenging part of growing your own business. That's something I've been yeah. thinking about where you know, if you scale things like we, I don't know, we all want to grow. There's almost this expectation that if you have a business, you try to keep growing it, you try to keep growing it. There's always the next thing. And that's really exciting and fulfilling. But um, at some point, if you're not careful, you kind of become a manager, you know, instead of doing the thing that you actually liked in the first place, you just become, yeah, someone who checks emails all day. And uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot because yeah, I could outsource a lot more things for the podcast, but I've at, at least to now I've chosen not to because I love it. I love sitting down and editing because it's, you know, I'm, I'm making the show that I want to listen to. And that's my chance to actually go back and listen and like really enjoy the episode. Because when I'm doing this, I'm enjoying it, but I'm I'm also yeah. on. I'm checking my notes. I'm checking my, you know, my page of notes over here yeah. uh, from our first conversation and, and kind of fielding um you know, questions and things like that as I'm keeping track of what you're saying. And it's totally different to go back after the fact and just like, ah, oh, I get to just sit here, enjoy some great stories from Louie, whatever it is. <laughs> um, so anyway, all that to say, yeah, I, ho- I hope you uh, continue to carve out a little space for, for, for personal coaching. It seems like you enjoy it a lot and it, it gives I, you I, a lot. I so. get a lot back from it as well, actually. I think... Um... I was, I was trying to work out recently, like, why why do I find coaching people, like, so fun? I, I was talking with um, one of the other coaches at Catalyst who was sort of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really keen to um, I'm really keen to do more coaching. Uh, I really want to take on this, like, uh, extra responsibility. They were reasonably saying, like, oh, I'm, I really want to do more coaching, but I'm not that psyched about coaching, like, completely new people. I'd rather work with, like, m- with, like more in-depth, with more experienced athletes. It's like, that's great. You do that because I'm actually really psyched coaching beginners. I-, I think it's great fun. I really enjoy it. So I was trying to work out why I like it so much. And um, I really find it inspiring watching people try really hard. And actually, when you're coaching more experienced climbers, they're really good. So they don't end up trying that hard a lot of the time. Some of them do. Some of them are really mm. good at trying hard. But with beginners... A lot of the time, or people who are just newer to climbing, I already know because they've said at the start of the session, they're like, I'm really not 
feeling so good about being at heights. So doing sketchy slams, even though I might consider it to be not that challenging for them is like way out of their comfort zone and seeing them like fight hard, even though they're like feeling quite scared is like for some reason, extremely thrilling for me. And I get like a lot of inspiration from it. Um, a lot of the time, yeah, I'll, I'll do a session with a beginner where I'm like, okay, yeah, they're only climbing like um, V2s, V3s, but man, I haven't seen anyone try that hard in a really long time. I'm pretty motivated for my own training. Now I'm going to try and try and try as hard as that guy just did climbing his V3. Oh, I'll be getting really strong then. So, um, so yeah, I just find it really, really fulfilling. I, um, I th- I'm really t- struggling to to make myself say it, but I, I think I'm good at it. Um, I've practiced for a long time. I, I really like, as you can tell, I'm, I'm very bubbly and really like talking to people. So I just have a really good time just sharing my passion with other people who mm. are also passionate about it and getting to see them progress and get a load of fulfillment for it, for themselves from it. it. It's a really, really nice job. Um, That's so awesome. Yeah, uh, hoping not to bring down the private coaching too much. I really, really like it. But, oh, man, I was thinking when um, you were saying a second ago about how um, finding that balance with business of, oh, the more seriously I take it, sometimes that can be a bit less enjoyable. I end up doing things I enjoy a little bit less. I was thinking back on our previous conversation about um, our approach to climbing and thinking, oh, actually, yeah, well, what we're saying about business, I also kind of struggle with my approach to climbing of, well, I enjoy climbing because it's really, really fun and I love the movement of it and the social life of it and challenging myself and all this sort of stuff some of the elements that I would need to take more seriously, potentially to like push to a higher grade in climbing, I find unenjoyable to the point of it, like kind of interrupting my motivation for climbing. Mm. Um, but just basic strength and conditioning and fingerboarding and like the, um, the off the wall stuff around, uh, around climbing. I'm getting better at it nowadays, but in the past I've really struggled to motivate myself to do it. Um, mm. I've, I climb a lot and I practice a lot. I wouldn't say I train very much. So I'm, I'm huh. still trying to get better at finding that balance between uh, training, but keeping it fun and also enjoying climbing the way I, the way I'm used to. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. That makes me want to share um, <clears throat> kind of my own version of that. Cause I had this thought when you were talking oh. just now about the experienced climbers, how sometimes it's, it's harder to get them to try hard because they're so used to climbing well and efficiently. And, um, that speaks to me a little bit. I think, you know, I, I like looking back on my lifetime of of probably more time outside rock climbing than indoor training and and um, climbing on plastic in the big picture. I think my strengths, I'm an engineer. I have that kind of like problem solving efficiency mindset and, you know, everything for the podcast. There's systems for everything. I have templates yeah. for everything. You know, it's all it's all really dialed. And my climbing's like that. And I obsess with what's the most efficient way to do all these moves. And I think I'm pretty good at trying hard when it's time, you know, like when I'm going for the send and when I have all those pieces in place. But up until that point, everything is about efficiency. And so I'm not the person that goes out there and just rages on moves and tries really hard every single try. And I've realized like, wow, I get a lot less training value out of the average climbing session than the people that just go out there and just, you know, every single time they pull on, they just grab the hold as hard as they possibly can. And that's something I've been thinking about. Like what, is there a balance there or do I, you know, lean even further into my kind of strategy mindset, but then practice the try hard. I mean, that's why I train, I guess. Like when you're training, you can kind of take all the efficiency away and the point is to try as hard as possible. But but, I think it's a really interesting one to talk about because I, yeah, 
yeah. I, uh, I feel like I learned loads more about this recently. I used to talk about it because I still, I still remember the exact phrase I used to say to people when I was coaching. I used to like really clearly say, talking about like improving efficiency as climbers, I'd say, oh, well, if you're climbing something really, really well, it kind of looks and feels like dancing. And if it's not going well, it looks and feels like wrestling and you don't want it to feel like wrestling. Mm. And now in hindsight, I've actually had a bunch of experiences with like some outdoor climbs or some indoor ones where I wanted to do them perfectly. And that would have been obviously what felt the most efficient. Then it didn't go well. I tried really, really hard, fought really hard for it anyway, and ended up topping it kind of with a style of climate where I thought like, ooh, based on my previous perfectionism, that shouldn't have worked. I didn't do that anywhere near as efficiently as I hoped to. Mm. Normally I'd give up. If I had that many foot slips, I would have just let go. But then I've, uh, I think then when we think about like, oh, overall efficiency, agreed. Yeah, we shouldn't really get to a point where we're trying with like V10 intensity on a V4 just because we've messed up a move and we're now trying really, really hard. But if you then end up flashing it because you tried really hard, well, now maybe that is more efficient than having to reclimb the entire thing, trying to do it perfectly. I, I had exactly this with a student where they got to like the last move and then decided not to do it. They came down, they're like, oh, no, I just I just didn't have the hold well at all. My foot wasn't placed well. It, it felt like if I if I did the move, it would have been really inefficient. So that's my reasoning. I was like, OK, well, now you have to do the whole climb again. So how <laughs> is that? You could have just done the last move. Um, yeah. So I usually nowadays just going back to that phrase of like oh if you're doing it well it feels like dancing if it goes badly it feels like wrestling nowadays i try and keep my mind as i start to climb i'm like maybe this is going to be a really nice dance maybe this is going to be a wrestling match i won't know until after my experience on this climb is finished so mm. i'm psyched for either let's see what happens oh that's cool it's, it's, <laughs> that's it's, cool. A, it's a fun one because then you you aim for perfectionism and then if you make mistakes then you just aim for ruthless tenacity instead <laughs> i do try and quite like temper that sometimes like if i'm if, and I'll usually give this advice to students of, oh, if you're going on an outdoor trip and conserving your skin is kind of a priority, because that's usually the first thing to go for people who are like on a week-long trip, um, you don't have to go to failure on every single attempt. Like grabbing a hold and then choosing to let go of it if the move isn't going well, that costs you very little skin. Dragging all the way down on a sloper because you're desperately trying to hold it, that would cost a lot of skin and it might not always be worth it. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, it's tricky to get the balance right. Sometimes it is right to be really, really perfectionist about stuff. Other times it doesn't matter so much. Other times you should just go for tenacity. Depends on the circumstances, I think. Mm -hmm. Louis, you're so easy to talk to. I have this whole outline in front of me. I have tons of notes. I have notes from oh, really? our first I conversation. I straight into a dead end of conversation. So I went, mm-hmm. Now what? <laughs> 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 no, this is amazing. I'm just thinking there's so many things we could branch off and talk about. I'm just... Um, we we might be all over the place, and that might be just how this goes. But this is this is awesome. I um I want to take a bunch of steps back and ask you some questions about your own climbing, and then I think it'd be great to kind of circle back around into how you think about this stuff with your coaching. So this was this was going to be my opening question for the podcast, and then you know you're so easy to talk to that half an hour's gone by already. How did you get the nickname Captain Cutloose? Oh man, good question. Okay, so um. Okay, um, when I was a younger climber, uh, I would describe myself as um, very front-wheel drive. Um, I, I was a wiry teenager who, I think, um, oh, my dad isn't into climbing at all. He actually has really bad vertigo. He doesn't even like watching me climb. <laughs> 
But I've, we were comparing our builds recently. I was, ah, oh, he's also got like really broad shoulders and really long arms. Basically, I think I get a, a pretty decent build for climbing from him. So started out as a fairly fairly wiry and pretty light uh, climber who kind of got naturally quite strong just by flailing about and climbing badly and <laughs> the more i flailed about and climbed badly the stronger i got and so every time i was trying to solve something i was like oh i'm sure there's some like technical way where you can like keep your feet on i guess but i'm pretty sure i can just campus this so yeah or whatever i'll just campus this and ended up kind of just going further and further into that niche until eventually i was like okay now i'm just known as that guy who is pretty strong and does some hard climbs but is like well known as not being that good at climbing and having his feet slip off all the time and somehow managing to save it anyway um so I kind of already had that reputation i think i was originally just on instagram just as like louis parkinson climbing um then they held a competition in sheffield called the uh, the beastmaker international footlist festival uh, and it was the first ever campusing only competition. Obviously, I was like beyond psyched about this. And I won. Which I was really, really happy about. Um, so then um, this must have been, so this must have been like, I can't remember what year this would be. I, I, this was when I was in like my early 20s. I must have still been on the British team because I remember it was in, uh, I was with the British team in Toronto. And, um, I think Shauna Coxie convinced me. She was like, oh, now that you've won that competition, the Biff, you should change your Instagram name to Mr. Biff. And for some reason, I was like, great idea. I love it. What great, Mr. Biff, what a, fun, what a fun nickname. And then the next year, the Biff competition rolled around again, and I did not win. <laughs> <laughs> who, who am I? False advertising. Someone else has to be Mr. Who Biff. am I? <laughs> I, 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 I full full identity crisis. Now. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, also, I was like, oh, damn. Now, kind of just as a fun thing, whoever wins the Biff becomes Mr. Biff and Mrs. Biff for the next year. So I was like, okay, well, I can't be Mr. Biff anymore. Um, so don't know where exactly Captain Cutloose came from, but that was then the next Instagram name. And pretty quickly, I was like, well, this is a much better name. This is very catchy. <laughs> I like this name. Yeah. Um, although, annoyingly, I think um, <laughs> it's it's a fun nickname, and I think it's, um, it's just a fun Instagram title. But the reputation of being a bonehead who doesn't know how to use his feet is a hard one to shake, especially if you're still called Captain Cutloose. And so just to be clear, everybody, that's an old reputation. I've practiced footwork a lot. I can climb some hard slabs. I can teach you some good stuff about footwork. I'm not still... I still like to campus stuff, and I still do have a slightly more like front-wheel drive approach to climbing than others. But I have practiced a lot to not only have that as my style now. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's why I was so interested in it, actually, because I remember being introduced to you just on the internet as Captain Cutloose, and it makes total sense, you know, like I recently, and, and, and this is a much newer video, you've been doing this stuff for a long time, but I watched your collaboration with Anna Hazelnut, and I think we're going to talk oh, a lot more about... so much fun to climb with. She seems so fun, I've never met her in person, yeah, but really we, we did an episode, and she's the slab queen, you know, she's so good at, like, slow, technical, balancey, delicate... Slab climbing, you know, those couple really hard climbs she did in the UK on the sea cliff where you're on lead yeah. for an hour fiddling in little gear and stuff. Um, she just did another really hard one in Austria. I think it's 14B. Hoping to chat with her about that at some point. But she's the slab queen. She's really good at slow, static slab climbing. And you're like the gym slab king, you know, like you're so good at uh, flowy, dynamic coordination sort of stuff. And you were teaching her how you break down those dynamic movements. And it was fascinating. And it's, it's you know, it really pops out like 
oh, this guy is a true expert at dynamic, flowy movement. So yeah, Captain Cutloose, it, it totally makes sense. But you have become a very excellent technical rock climber as well. And I remember, I think the first actual footage I saw of you, because I'm, I'm an outdoor rock climber primarily, like I've yeah. talked about, and that's where my psyche is. And so I watch everything. You know, I watch all the, the outdoor climbing films. Um, nowadays, like you can just get a YouTube premium subscription and, and you're happy. But, you know, so ten, good stuff. five or 10 years ago, uh, it was it was totally different. It was all DVDs or just online downloadable climbing films. And I have a hard drive with like literally 30 or 40 feature length climbing films on it. You know, I used to just watch them on repeat. I would go in my garage and hangboard and like watch a climbing film. And I stumbled into this movie Reach. I don't remember how, but... um. Oh man, that's a good one. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'll, I'll try to find it and link to it for people listening. And maybe you can tell me more about it, who made it. I, I don't actually know. But I remember, I remember this really distinctly. You were on a trip to Magic Wood. I'd love to hear about the trip because you, in our last conversation, you told me it was the best trip of your life. I think it was one of your first big rock climbing trips, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd climbed outdoors before. Okay. Um, I'd, um, there was a local crag that I went to a lot while I was at university. Um, before that, I hadn't really climbed outdoors much. Um, so had got a bit more accustomed to climbing on rock, but it was still like primarily climbing indoors. Um, and then um, I think actually, yeah, that trip to Magic Wood was probably the first time where I was going there with like other pretty hardcore climbers. We were there exclusively to try a load of hard climbs and to get as much done as we could in, for me, a fairly short space of time. And so, yeah, probably the um, the first like serious bouldering trip I've gone on, I reckon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That. Th thanks for sharing that, for filling that in. And and it was interesting. I remember, you you know, right away, you kind of live up to your name. I think I'm getting this right. I haven't seen the film in quite some time, but, you know, you get introduced. Here's Louis Parkinson, Captain Cutloose. And I think you climbed um, Jack's Broken Heart, maybe? I don't know if I'm getting... Yeah, yeah, I got Jack's Broken Heart. That it's, was such a good... It's like it's a like V11 or something, and there's like multiple ways to do it. And of course, Louis just like dinos through the entire problem, just does the whole boulder in like one move. Is that the right oh. one? Or is that something no, else? No, I know the one you mean now. There's... um, It's fo it's the Foxy Lady Boulder. Okay. Um, You can do the 8A version, which is using technique and some very small holds uh, to get through the boulder. Or you can start from the starting jug, skip all the technical hard moves on crimps, and just do this massive dino to a, <laughs> I mean, I think a decent edge. It's not that decent. I think I don't think it gets eight A. I think it gets like seven uh, B plus or maybe seven C or something like that. It's a big dino to a small hold. Wait, uh, so it's v it's I V eleven. It's eight A if you climb the whole boulder, but if you do the whole thing in one move, it's easier. That I don't know if that makes any yeah. sense, but <laughs> I know, I know. That, that's I find awesome. Grading and the difficulty of climbs really confusing the more i think about it the more confused i get about grading systems yeah <laughs> um, so let's not go into that right now okay but um but yeah magic wood really really suited me it was like yeah most of it is overhanging decent edges it very much suits the uh <laughs> the gentleman who's used to climbing indoors on overhanging walls with very very obvious hand and footholds yeah so uh, yeah had a good time in magic wood but yeah, so that first climb, you like immediately live, live up to your name. I'm like, oh, that's why this guy is called Captain Cutloose. You know, that makes sense. But then the climb that really stands out to me from that film is you climbing Riverbed, which is a V13, 8B. And I was so impressed with how you climbed it. 
um, specifically your breathing when you were climbing it was really interesting to me. It was, I don't know if I've ever seen someone climb something with such intentional breathing. There's a lot of climbers who breathe loudly and who breathe, um, you know, with some intention throughout a hard climb, but the timing, the pacing of your breathing was matched with every single move. Every move was, was flowy. You climbed it perfectly. And I was like, oh, wow, this guy's a really, really good technical rock climber. Um, so credit to you for, for turning that reputation around. I mean, no one else thinks that or has ever said that. That's really, really kind of you, Stephen. <laughs> I see you, Louie. I see you. But but tell me about that climb. Was that um was that a meaningful one to you? I'd love to hear more yeah, about man, it. That was um that was my first of I think only two eight uh, B boulders that I've done, and um, definitely although uh, I start on this. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you want to describe it? Oh, the boulder itself? Yeah, man. It's, um, I think I counted up. I think it's like 20 or so moves basically on an over, an overhanging prow. So you're basically just climbing on a roof above the ground. Uh, huge bonus is that that means you can like pull on and practice any move of the climb without having to climb into it. So that made it really, really good Love practice. That. Yeah. Um, it's pretty long with some pretty hard moves on it. I don't think there would be anything on its own, which is like a V13 move. But there were some pretty hard moves on there, and it goes on for a while. So yeah, gets gets V thirteen. Um, it's a pretty popular one for people to do when they go to Magic Woods. Uh, it's right by the riverbed. That's why it's called Riverbed. Um, you do some opening moves on jugs. It's like quite a like almost full span between uh, the first few moves, but they're on really really good holds. So you race through that really really quickly. Then you get onto like a really delicate section on tiny holds as you come across the lip of the roof. And then you spend the last section smashing through like really, really powerful like compression moves with heel hooks and toe hooks and all this sort of stuff for the last like, as I remember, like six to eight moves. And then you're just topping out and it's probably like V4, V5 on some crimps. So I remember day one did all the moves and did it in a couple of sections. Day two had it linked in like two overlapping sections. I was like, oh, it's in the bag. I'm going to do it. And then spent another two days just flailing around and dropping it again and again and again and again and again. And actually, I, I totally got to the point where it was like it was now like last day of the trip. My hands were bleeding a bit. I'd continued to fall off it for the whole day again. So I and then it was like about to start raining. So I was like, OK, I think I'm going to accept that I'm not about to do this boulder. Kind of sucks. I would have loved to do this, but all right, I'm going to abandon expectations of doing it. Just before it starts raining properly, I'm going to hop on for like one more go, this time only with the intention of just just enjoying the boulder because I haven't really done that. I've just been so preoccupied with trying to actually send it. I haven't really enjoyed enjoyed it as Mm. much as I could have. So I'm just going to get on once more just to really, really enjoy it. And that was the time that I did it. So, um... It was also a nice little lesson for me of like, oh, if you actually just focus on enjoying it, you probably free up a little bit more of a, a present mindset to climb a bit better and not start panicking about the ending moves or how badly the opening moves went or getting tired or any of this stuff. You just enjoy doing the boulder. So, yeah, did that one. Um, and then, yeah, we were saying it was like the most successful trip for me ever. Uh, I think I was there for like either five or six days. I did... I'd done one eight a boulder before this trip, and I did like a really neat pyramid of, I think it was, must have been like seven seven C's, 
five seven C pluses, three eight A's, two eight A pluses, and my first eight B. So <laughs> wow, I feel very good about my climbing now. Yeah, man. Um, wow, amazing. It was a good trip, man. It was a very very good tick list. I was really really proud of it. Um, and have not really had such a successful trip since then. That was like a decade ago. <laughs> yeah, I uh, yeah, that's funny. I had um I had this like best trip of my life in 2017, and I remember at the end of the week thinking like, I've done it. I've leveled up. I'm awesome yeah. now. You know. And then <laughs> in hindsight, it's like, no, you were just peaking, and you had like the best week of yeah. your life, and that doesn't just happen all the time. Like that was actually really no. special. But so that's okay. Like, I, yeah, um, totally. Yeah. I think I'm because I, I see other climbers doing it all the time, and I tr I I'm tr I pointed out to people in um in coaching sessions, and I'm really careful not to do it myself. So I know I used to do it all the time. Have you noticed climbers doing this as well? That basically, as soon as they achieve something that now becomes the new bare minimum benchmark mm. for what they're happy with. And everything is now measured to that new standard and they get really annoyed. They don't meet it again. I, oh man. Um, I remember one of the projects that took me the longest to do was, do you know Karma in Fontainebleau? It's like this, mm. um, eight A or eight A plus like mantle problem. Took me many years to finally do it. And then finally after like, yeah, years of effort, Finally, where I was like, oh, if I put my heel like a centimeter higher and just rock over into it and rock over into it a little bit further, actually the move's not that bad. And whoa, I've done it! Oh my god, it felt so easy that time. So I was really, really happy with it. Really, really pleased. All that hard work. Finally, did a hard project. And then within like three minutes, I was like, you know, what? it felt so easy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and do it again. And then I fell off it, and immediately was like, oh, there's something wrong with me. Oh no, I can't, I can't just do it on demand. What the hell? So, yeah, and, <laughs> obviously that's like an extreme version, but I think climbers do this a yeah. lot more often than they realize. Yeah. Um, I think humans do this a lot with humans with this, everything. Right, yeah. 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 Not just climbers. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage. I take the Fizzy Vantage Supercharge Collagen every day. Why? Because my fingers need collagen to get stronger. Hello. Here's the deal. Supercharged Collagen is a research-based, athlete-proven supplement that supports collagen synthesis in connective tissue and the force transfer matrix of muscle. What the hell does all that mean? Well, to me, it means if you want stronger fingers, you should be supplementing with collagen. I personally am taking my collagen an hour before my finger training on my training days to get the most out of my training. And I really think it helps. It makes sense. Collagen is what our tendons are made of, and we need more collagen to make them stronger. And it's working. It's awesome. Collagen is super helpful for recovering from injuries as well. I've had a couple injuries in the last year. I had a bicep tendon injury this winter, and having a lot of collagen in my diet helped me get back to 100% and back to climbing V10 again within three months from the date of the injury. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. My Rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Rumple's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish, so it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. 
This thing is the best. And as I said, it's the coziest blanket you could ask for. Perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag. Great for camping. I have one in my van and use it all the time. And just great to have around the house. It'll be your new favorite blanket, full stop, whatever the circumstances. And Rumpel also makes many other amazing products. The Nanoloft Travel Blanket is the size of a Nalgene when packed down and can travel with you wherever you go. And the Everywhere Mat and the Everywhere Towel are two products that I also use and love. As someone who lives in a van, those two products come in handy all the time. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order of amazing blankets and gear. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. And now back to the show. Um, it's funny, you describing your experience on Riverbed, I hadn't really made this parallel, but um, that is an uncanny parallel to Steppenwolf. It's like the same exact story. Oh, Last no, day of the no, trip, it's about to rain, you're bleeding. <laughs> it is the same thing. I, That's crazy. I'm unintentionally doing it on purpose. I actually kind of enjoy the experience of a boulder morph. It's been like a real a real battle. Um, and that one on Steppen, Steppenwolf was a proper battle. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I think mostly what I learned from those two was it's, um, it's usually when you specifically stop worrying about whether you're going to do it or not and just focus on the individual moves and enjoying them and trying really, really hard, you then climb better and it's more likely that you end up doing the boulder if you stop worrying about it so much. Mm. Uh, but it's a really, really tricky sort of mindset to get into. Um, oh, just before we lose the thread, because I think we were going to talk, talk about it a minute ago, you brought up the um, intentional breathing thing. Yeah, let's on, talk about uh, it. Did, did you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, yeah. I would love to hear how you think about that. I've never... I, I it's, it's It reminds me a lot of uh, weightlifting, actually. actually. Like I've you know, gone down some rabbit holes, maybe too far down some training rabbit holes where I started yeah. losing the plot a little bit. But in that, I learned a lot about um, kettlebell training at one point. I took like a course and, you know, was learning how to do snatches and swings and things like that. And your breathing on riverbed reminds me of that more than anything I've seen in rock climbing where you're timing your breathing with, you know, the uh, the concentric, concentric motion of the, of the movement, breathing out and, yeah. and staying really tight and Anyway, so so yeah, it'd be interesting to hear where that came from and how you think about it. Well, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I, I don't claim to have like the right answer on this or be like a breathing expert for climbing, but I, I've I've got a pretty useful way of doing it and I've got a really useful thing that I teach other people. So yeah, let, let, let's go into it. So um, I think slightly confusing one with climbing is um, as as you were saying, like with with other sports, there's a really clearly defined breathing pattern, which is you should exhale during the moment of exertion. Like if you're doing, yeah, if you're doing a hard press or something like that, you inhale, okay, yeah, for a push-up, you inhale as you lower down and then you exhale when you push back up again. That's all fine, that makes sense. Then you try and apply it to climbing and immediately go, okay, where's the moment of exertion? Is it when they pull really hard to go to the next hold? Is it when they hit the next hold? Is it like when they're just keeping tension to move feet between different places? I think one of the difficulties with climbing is that you're always under tension and you're always exerting yourself in various different ways. So trying to time your breathing to match a certain movement you're doing can be really difficult because it's hard to tell what to do. Um, 
first one I started thinking about was I was like, okay, if I if I close my eyes and I imagine Adam Ondra doing the hardest movie can, what does it look like? And most of the time, like maybe you're all doing the same when you're listening to this, you're probably not picturing him, although I can, now I describe this, locking down on a crimp and going, as he reaches all the way to the next one. More likely, especially if you imagine Chris Sharma saying Passat, um, <laughs> he he goes for a big move as he catches the hold. Then he does his big power scream as he cuts loose going. Wah! So to me, that means, OK, when he hits the hold, that's the moment of exertion. Mm. And so he should be breathing in as he does the move so that he can exhale when he hits the move. Um, again, this is just like one example. But a lot of the time, the hardest the hardest point of the move would be when you then hit that next hold. You're trying to use contact strength to keep it and you're trying to maintain tension with feet that you want to keep or whatever it might be. That's the moment of exertion. So, okay, let's try and practice breathing with that in mind. Um, so I started practicing, yeah, just being really, really intentional with um, timing my breaths so that I would inhale as I was moving and exhale sharply as I hit the next hold. Um, immediate benefit I found of this was like, man, I uh, I wasn't breathing at all before. So <laughs> huge, this is a huge improvement. Um, I think a lot of climbers actually don't realize how much they're holding their breath. So even if just the bare minimum is you're like, oh, I'm now taking in oxygen on every move I do, that's obviously a huge help. Um, so that, that was really, really helpful. It's just, okay, I'm now actually breathing when I climb. That's great. Um, the next thing I found really, really helpful was actually it really, really did help me in specific thing I've famously not been that good at, maintaining tension in my feet during a hard and precise move to a small hold on an overhang. Mm. I think that's really, really, really tricky to do. And I found that, yeah, keeping this specific breathing rhythm where I'd go inhale with like pursed lips. And then as I hit the hold going, exhaling through pursed lips again, literally feels like it kind of keeps me inflated and makes it much easier to maintain tension on the footholds. But then the main thing that I found like really, really exciting about or um, really beneficial about practicing that breathing style is um, how it helps me focus. So I wish I remembered to do it more frequently because it really, really, really helps me. Um, I think a lot of the time when you're, especially on like a hard project, if you're going for, and you can imagine exactly this, you're going for a really precise, slightly dynamic shot to a small hold. You not only need to hit it really, really precisely, you also then need to maintain tension throughout your core, press into the folds. Basically, you need to do the move perfectly, and it's still really, really, really hard. I generally find the more space I have to overthink that move, the more I'll overthink it, and the easier it is to then mess up different parts of it just because I'm thinking about it too much. Mm. If I've just practiced that breathing rhythm, all I think about is the breathing of going, okay, I'm just going to focus on inhaling. When I hit the hold precisely, then I'll do my nice tight exhale again. It basically feels like it just narrows my focus. And after I practiced it, it feels like it gives me a lot of confidence of if I just focus on the breathing, I don't need to think about whether or not I will hit the hold. I'm I'm kind of already expecting that I will hit the hold and I'm just trying to time my breath with that. So really, really helps me focus, really, really helps me maintain tension. And also means I'm actually breathing when I climb. So three main benefits. Try it out, folks. See what you think. Again, like I say, it's not the only way of breathing when you climb. Because uh, I also thought about it going, okay, so if that's my breathing rhythm, I'm going to breathe in as I'm reaching for the next hold. And I'll exhale sharply through pursed lips when I hit the hold. When do I breathe when I'm moving my feet? Because <laughs> otherwise I'm just holding my breath while I'm in between mm. all that other stuff. I kind of have it as an open one of I'll do that intentional breath when I'm moving hands and I'll just breathe free, freely at all other times, moving my feet around, whatever else it is. That works quite well for me. Um, or maybe it doesn't work and it's just a placebo effect. But if it's that, then that works really well too. Mm. Um, 
so yeah, recommend practicing it. Um, but I'd also recommend, as I do with like a lot of the stuff I teach students, don't just practice it assuming, oh, well, that Louis guy's a smart coach. It must be correct. Practice it critically and actually like work out for yourself. Like, oh, why, what actually does this do? I'll try it out, experiment with it. Maybe you get something good from it. Maybe you work out that something else is better for you, in which case, great. Good thing you practiced it intentionally. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, thanks for sharing all that context on that. I'm curious, what what does practice look like? Can you try it? Because I'm thinking, you know, obviously you could practice it all the time. You could practice it while you're warming up on easier things, but does it make sense to practice it on easy moves when you don't, you know, moves that don't require that kind of precision and timing? I actually think that's the best time to practice stuff. Um, I, um, I think most of the skills that we use as climbers are actually only genuinely useful to us on hard climbs when we're near our physical limit if we are literally doing them on autopilot and for me that requires like a fair amount of dedicated practice time earlier in my sessions um a a big thing that i'm pretty keen on is the idea that okay if i'm on like easy boulders or basically climbs that don't challenge me to my maximum ability i have spare concentration um i could either just switch off a little bit and allow myself to climb not as well as I need to, to do to, uh, or as well as I would on a harder climb, I can just get away with climbing it slightly badly. Or I can intentionally practice the skills that I want to be second nature to me when I get onto much harder climbs. So for me, if, I, if I'm on a hard climb, I'll be pretty focused on just, just execute as best you can the stuff you've practiced, if it happens naturally, great. If it's not happening naturally, don't spend extra focus on trying to make that happen now. It, it should have been done in practice. But then when I'm warming up on easy climbs, when I'm warming up on medium difficulty climbs, when I'm repeating climbs that I have done before, but I now know quite well, so they feel a bit easier, all of those times I'm like really intentionally practicing stuff. So, okay, with regards to the um, bre- uh, intentional breathing practice, I think the best time to do this would be after you've got a base level of warm up, you've done like your cardio, your dynamic stretching, you've done about 10 minutes of easy climbing and you're ready to do like medium intensity moves. Really good place to do this would be on a gently overhanging board. Depends how strong you are. If you're strong, do it on a really overhanging board if you want. But if you're getting used to it, do it on like a 30 degree board. Um, If it's got loads and loads of choices for holds, that just gives you more options of what you can move to. And I just make up like almost dead point moves where I can keep my foot on. I keep them relatively easy, but I keep it easy specifically so that I'm able to focus on timing my breaths at the right moment. I'll usually practice that for about 20 minutes or so, and then I'll try and do it intentionally on a harder climb. If it doesn't feel natural because I've not practiced it enough, then that's fine. I'll just save it for practice time again. If it does feel more natural because I practiced it, then great. It will do, do me a bit of benefit on that hard climb. So yeah, on a board in the... I guess like uh, 30 minutes to 50 minutes mark of your session, probably the best time to practice it. When you're working on a skill like this, Louis, let's say you're practicing breathing, is it the skill that you're focusing on for a longer chunk of time? Like every single session you're doing that focused chunk of, of practice with breathing? Um, or do you, do you mix sessions up and focus on different skills for different sessions? What, what does that look like? So it's it slightly depends on um, what I think uh, a priority would be for me um, and what I've got coming up. Um, if I've got like a competition that I'm excited about, then I might practice it a little bit, but I'd probably be more um, more focused on just practicing and refining dynamic movement, practicing my competition tactics. So I'm a bit more focused in just doing stuff in five minute chunks. Um, but then if I've just got okay, nothing particular on the horizon other than 
I've got a trip outdoors soon. There's probably going to be some hard climbs that I want to do. I'm just going to refresh how I feel about that breathing technique because that actually really, really helps me for specifically those sort of moments. I, I kind of practice stuff whenever I think it might be most appropriate. There are also certain things that I enjoy practicing more than anything else, or there's certain things that I really enjoy practicing and which I think have really good knock-on effects for loads of other stuff. So like, okay, um, one of the ones that I practice a lot is just just basic precision. Um, it's a really, really common game that I'm sure loads of people have done of just the sticky hands and sticky feet game. But I've found that if you do that as a way of like practicing perfectionism on harder climbs, like, okay, yeah, I've done that V9 before. But when I flashed it, I was like, oh, I was flailing all over the place. I caught that hold really badly. I made it feel a lot harder than it needed to. If I practice it with this like precision drill, one, it means I, I get a lot more precise and I feel a lot more confident in my precision as a climber. But it also has a lot of really nice knock-on effects where I like I actually look at the climb really, really carefully. I'll prepare the climb a lot more. I'll, I'll behave in a way that is more relevant for much harder climbs than I'm practicing on. So I just build like pretty good habits for harder climbs later. Um, so no, I think my my the specific stuff I practice changes a lot. I teach, um, actually one of the other coaches I worked with asked me this recently, because I, on the coaching courses when I'm training them, teach them like loads and loads of all these different drills and movement exercises. And when I'm coaching other people, we'll do really clearly structured, like, okay, we're going to do this drill for about 20 minutes or so. Then we're going to work on this one for a bit. Then we'll do some root reading practice. Then we'll work on hard projects or a comp sim or whatever it might be. And so then when one of the coaches asked me recently, they're like, oh, when you're warming up, what drill do you practice? Mm. Like, hmm. Yeah, yeah, good question, actually. Initially, I almost said, like, oh, actually, I don't, I guess I don't really practice any of them. And then I thought about it more. I was like, no, 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 no. It's that I've done them all so many times that a lot of the time I'm thinking about multiple different aspects of different drills at once. Mm. And I'll be trying to, like, simultaneously practice climbing really fluidly and timing my momentum to flow between the moves. But I'm also trying to think about grabbing the holds really, really precisely, which normally would be in a separate drill. And then I'm also trying to think about like my body awareness and not actually pulling too hard and paying attention to the intensity of the moves. So I I guess I think about a lot of stuff while I'm warming up on, on easier and mid-grade climbs. And then later in the session, I'll kind of structure stuff based on, am I wanting to do hard outdoor climbs? Have I got a competition coming up? Have I just got a YouTube video tomorrow and I shouldn't burn out too much skin? What's best for me to do today? Mm. I was going to ask that. I was going to ask what your go-to skill drills are. So that's really interesting. I do. As you can guess, a lot of dynamic movement practice. Yeah. Really yeah. No, that makes sense though. You, you start by, you know, breaking them down into individual skill drills. You've done those all for decades and now you can kind of do the, I don't know, the 300 or 400 level uh, of those and, and combine them. Um, I want to circle back to the sticky hands, sticky feet, just Oh, yeah, please. Just to have you elaborate on that in case people don't know what that is. I think I know exactly what you mean, but can you describe that drill for people that are curious? Oh, yeah, because I cannot stress enough. Like, I, I love this drill. I think everyone should do it. Um, so, okay, usually uh, when I'm teaching this, this to a student, I would... I would preface it by saying, okay, when you readjust on a hold with your hands and feet, so maybe like you grab the hold, but you're not in the best spot, so you just shuffle around and get a better position, or you put your foot down and you know it's not in the best place, so you, you slide it around so you get the spot you wanted. There's nothing wrong with doing that, and a lot of the time you might need to do it. But I strongly suspect that if everyone was as aware of how often they did it as they could be, they would do it a lot less. Because essentially, if you grab a hold badly and then have to use energy to grab it again, you're basically doing reps when you could just do one rep. And why would you want to do more than one rep if you're trying to be as efficient as possible? So we play a really, really fun game with students where step one, 
Um, I'll demonstrate it first. I'll just I'll climb something relatively easy and I'll add in a few like, oh, I readjusted my hand or I readjusted my foot there and I just get them to spot it. Um, so that we're both aware of like, okay, this is what counts as a readjustment. Great. You can see it as well. You're starting to understand what I'm talking about. Okay. Now you have a go and it feels really mean at first, but basically every time they make even the tiniest readjustment, I'll go, oh, look, nope. did you notice you did it again? Let's try again. Let's try again. It's a frustrating three or four minutes, especially for more experienced climbers who really have this as like an ingrained habit because they, they're less aware that they're doing it. So usually it will take a few minutes of me pointing it out and going, oh, you just did it just there. Yeah, left foot. Did you notice? Okay, start again. And then usually after a few minutes, we get to a point where they're climbing it again, they readjust, and before I say anything, they'll go, oh, damn it. Oh, I just readjusted my right foot. Oh, damn. Okay, I'll start again. And at that point, I'm like, ah, oh, brilliant. You have now built awareness of readjustments. Well done you. You're noticing when you're doing it. So now let's play this really simple game. Um, and this is what I'd recommend you do at home, folks. Well, not at home, at your local climbing gym. Pick a medium-grade climb. Once you're really aware of the readjustments you're making, pick a medium-grade climb where you look at it going, oh, I can, yeah, I can climb that. But the idea of having to keep my hands and feet still and not being allowed to shuffle, that sounds really, really difficult. That's the right level of difficulty for this exercise. You pick a climb, you climb it once. Even if it's going terribly, still keep going just keep a running total of counting how many times you readjust and then by the time you get to the top you're like cool i did it i readjusted five times though and then obviously you repeat the climb again you try and do less than five readjustments fairly simple game but for me yeah the knock-on effects i get from it are really really helpful mm. um after a while whereas initially your habit might be to just readjust on every hand and foothold even when you didn't need to eventually you retrain that habit so that by default you don't expect to ever be able to readjust and so you grab everything much more precisely than you were previously um having that level of precision saves you a huge amount of energy but it also gives you a lot of confidence to know i practice precision all the time when i'm going for like a hard shot to a really really small blocked hold I'm not that worried about whether i'm going to miss it because I, I warm up practicing this drill all the time mm. um the other really useful benefit that i get from it which i cannot overstate enough is a really really helpful one for people very very often when you're playing this game you will grab the wrong part of a handhold or you'll put your foot down on a hold and you're like oh man that that is not where i meant to put it there's a really good bit of the hold over there and i put my foot down in this crap spot if you make yourself try it anyway and just try and push through that move you start practicing this really really useful skill in climbing which is even if it doesn't feel comfortable, it might work anyway. Just make yourself do it, which otherwise isn't really a skill you get to practice. And mm. for me, the idea of, oh, I put my foot down in the wrong place. It doesn't feel right, but I'm just going to try and make myself do it anyway. That is actually a really, really similar thought process to, I put my foot down perfectly on a hold, which is much worse than I wanted it to be. It doesn't feel right at all, but I guess there's nothing for it, but to push through and see if it works anyway pushing through uncomfortable feeling positions like that i found is like a really useful thing to practice because the number of times i've just not gone for a move because i thought like no this this can't be it like that this sloper feels unusable this foothold feels completely impossible there must be another way of doing it and then eventually i've just gone okay i'm just gonna try it even though it feels unlikely and then discovered oh it works fine i just <laughs> didn't realize that i would be able to get through that level of discomfort on a move and now now i know that i can push through that level of discomfort now i can do that every time um i've gone off on a massive tangent here no it's great a good goal to practice folks yeah i love it it's it's interesting it reminds me of probably the main benefit at least for me personally that i feel when i climb on the moon board i mean the moon board obviously yeah. is a great like power training tool but the commercial climbing gym is designed generally you know if you have good route setters to be pretty pleasant like a, a nice flowy pleasant experience yeah. And um, 
it's not, it's often not like rock climbing and the moon board, what, what it taught me when I started climbing on it for the first time was to exactly what you're describing, like to execute and try really hard when things just don't feel right. It's like, oh, this body position is crazy. It feels all wrong. The foot's in the wrong place. Yeah. I'm totally off balance and I just have to try hard anyway. Yeah. Um, just practicing like pulling the trigger without hesitation from those uncomfortable <sighs> positions. It's huge. I remember the specific moment where I really appreciated it where there was, um, there was an outdoor climb uh, in uh, an old near Sheffield called, oh, called Brad Pitt. Um, and it's just this weird, like tenuous position where you're like balanced on a heel hook and you're kind of like shuffling up these, these rubbish slopers. I've been trying it for ages. And every time I got to this like slopey section, I'd just like kind of get them go, no, it feels like I'm peeling off. No, this can't be right. I can't try hard like this. It just feels so unbalanced. I must be missing something. Then I went out there with a bunch of friends and they all just like <laughs> walked up it. Uh, cause they didn't have any preconceptions about how it was supposed to feel or anything like that. So I asked them, I was like, what the hell? Like, when I try it, it feels like I'm just going to fall off like any second. It feels so tenuous. What, what did you do differently? And they're like, no, that's how it felt for me. I just kept going. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, right. I see. Okay. Well, let me try that. And it worked. Um, so yeah, the idea of just, just push through, even if it does feel that comfortable, really useful one to practice. Yeah. Um, man, we've covered loads of good stuff. We talked about drills. We talked about breathing. We talked about <laughs> development of me as an indoor climber and not much else. Um, what else have we got on the agenda? <laughs> I want to follow this thread a, a little bit deeper and then let's let's uh, change yeah, topics. Please, but um, I wanted to ask you two more questions about the skill stuff. What skill drills do you find yourself uh, repeatedly recommending to maybe like moderately experienced climbers? Not total beginners necessarily, but people that are, de you know, decent climbers. Yeah. Um, what are the most common things that people are missing and need to work on as far as skills go? Good, good question. And uh, obviously it does vary depending on the student. People have like very different habits, different strengths or different things that they practice more than other things. Um, for the most part though, um, definitely the precision drill. I recommend to like a lot of people. So, some people, if I wasn't climbing, I'm like, oh, you actually naturally climb really, really precisely. Then I might not bother recommending it to them. But a lot of people, I think that's a really, really good one to practice. One of the ones that I think can often come across as a i have to explain it carefully because it otherwise seems like a patronizingly basic drill to teach to inter intermediate climbers but mm. um improving body awareness so by this i mean if i was talking about it really briefly i'd describe it as oh you know how sometimes beginners climb with like their arms bent the whole time and ideally you'd want them to climb with nice straight arms a version of that i think can be really really appropriate for more intermediate or advanced climbers um but I'll explain that pretty clearly because I don't think that practicing with straight arms is a necessarily good way to practice. For a beginner climber who is like locked in like this the whole time, yes, I might simplify it enough to say, just try and keep your arms relaxed. That would be a really good thing to practice. For more intermediate climbers, though, I think that's a gross oversimplification because, yeah, I agree. If you're if you're on a slightly overhanging wall and you're on a really, really good hold and you're keeping locks off for no reason, then yes, you are burning strength. That's not an efficient position. But I think the way I was taught it when I was younger, which is good climbing technique is arm straight, twisted into the wall. This is good climbing technique and square on arms locked into the wall is bad climbing technique. I don't think, I don't think that quite fits. I think climbing is too varied for that to be true. Yeah, I, I just think like, what would Aiden Roberts think about that? That was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's his whole style. Well, so, so the process I go through with students is, um, 
step one, just getting them to be like more aware of the strength they're using. We're, we're, we're all guilty of doing this accidentally. That when we warm up, we're at climbs that take, okay, if you climb V7 or so, you're probably going to warm up on a V1. There is no move on that V1 that would take more than 10% of your total strength. So you put in more strength than you need to on every move, and you don't really notice any of the subtleties on any of the move because you don't need to. Um, so I, I found there was like a lot of scope for learning on the easier climbs if I slow down and pay a bit more attention to them. Because um, I think we all also get to a point in our climbing where we're like, oh, I've climbed for a while. The V1s and the V2s, they, they, don't, they just don't challenge me any, anymore. There's nothing I can really learn on those. The climbs that challenge me, that's what teaches me stuff. So I want to just race through my warm up, get onto the hard stuff. That's where I'll learn things. And now I realize actually, no, by, by being too strong and going too fast, we're just missing loads of learning opportunities. So step one, get onto an easy climb and just give a running commentary of what you're noticing. Uh, so start talking about like, oh, uh, I, I now notice that I'm squeezing this hold really, really tightly. Or I'm, oh, I'm keeping a lot of tension in my arm, in my shoulder, my core, my legs, whatever it might be. Um, so literally just getting them to describe what they're noticing really 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 helpful and sometimes people will immediately go like oh i did not realize that i was like crushing the holds into powder when i could have just been holding them as loosely as i need to to stay on the wall so first just giving people that awareness of like oh did you notice the various types of strength you're using there that's a really nice interesting place to start then ask them to do it again and just experiment a little bit with okay come up with two different options for each move and i'll, I'll kind of warn them in advance saying there isn't a correct answer you're looking for because Kind of as we said, there's there isn't a correct way of climbing. If I if I keep my arm straight and I lean back from the wall and I do it like a nice drop knee move, that's great because I save strength in my arm. But that's at the expense of I've now put more weight into my handhold. Conversely, I could also choose to come really close to the wall, and supposedly that's not a good position to be in because I've used more strength in my arms. But now I'm here, I've got loads more weight over my feet, I've got a lot less weight into the hands. So I kind of understand it nowadays as. When we climb, we're just choosing to make various compromises of different types of strength. Mm. Now, when I warm up on easy climbs, my aim is to actually think through and understand the different compromises I'm making. So when I talk about it with students, I'll go, okay, look, on this V1, you can do a drop knee and you could do it with your feet there or there or there or over there. They're all just different versions of the drop knee, but they'll all feel subtly different and have slightly different benefits. None of them matter now because you can just you can do this V1 however you like. But on a harder climb later, there might be a fair bit of choice as to how you do a move. And if you already understand all of these compromises, you've got a much better shot of picking the easiest move for yourself. Mm. So I find a lot of benefit in just slowing right down on easier climbs, really paying attention to exactly the compromises we're making with strength and just experimenting a little bit more on easier climbs. Benefits for me have been that Initially, I just like widen my movement vocabulary. Um, we're, I think most of us are strong enough that we can climb basically any V1 like a ladder with our feet just smearing against the wall and learn nothing. Or I can like intentionally be creative, experiment with different options on each move. None of them are necessary, but I might be practicing things that come up later in my session or later in my climbing. So widening my movement vocabulary, really, really helpful. Um, second one, which I found a, a, to be a really good benefit, slow payoff but after a lot of practice you get to the point that you instinctively use the minimum amount of strength rather than instinctively just ripping everything off the wall as you go so that's really really helpful and then the last one for me and then i'll shut up because i've been babbling away about this girl for a while <laughs> um the last one that i find really really beneficial is oh as i said earlier once you get to a certain point in your climbing 
you might start thinking that the V0s and the V1s, stuff like that, just aren't as exciting or interesting anymore. If you really slow down and you get onto the climbs with this drill and you look at them through this lens where you're like, no, I'm, I'm wanting to experiment and to understand movement a little bit more, suddenly all those V0s and V1s are fascinating. Mm. Um, but if you, only if you get into it, because sometimes I'll explain this drill to people and they're like, okay, I'm climbing the jug ladder slowly. Is that, what, is that endurance training? I'm like, okay, no, no, you pay more attention and you'll, you'll learn more from it. But um, that's one that I think is really good to, to teach uh, to a lot of intermediate students. And then the last one, I oh, sorry, I did say I was going to shut up, but apparently I'm not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the last one, because we talked about precision, we talked about the body awareness drill, um, dynamic movement and improving a confident use of momentum, I would passionately say is good for all climbers, not just mm. people who want to do parkour competition style boulders. Dynamic movement is used in all disciplines of climbing. It's just not as overtly obvious as when you see someone do a running jump paddle mm. Um, so a lot of the time I find myself practicing sometimes really basic momentum skills. Uh, sometimes people are genuinely good at it, but they just have really low confidence, which then ends up that they actually just perform at a really low level. So a lot of the time we do some practice with the aim of building confidence. Sometimes we do it with the aim of actually improving their understanding of how to use momentum. Uh, but for a lot of people practicing using momentum is a really, really good one to, to have a look at. Mm. Um, I guess in general, my main advice for you would be think about what you like doing the least and think about what you think you're the worst at and start hammering that because that's the oh, by far the easiest way to improve it takes the least amount of practice to improve because you're already bad at it and you're probably avoiding doing it loads and actually even if it doesn't seem related to the stuff you're genuinely really passionate about like some people i'm sure would say like i'm i'm into trad climbing i cannot imagine how practicing momentum is ever really going to be that relevant to hard sketchy outdoor trad climbs over and over again, I've noticed I practice a weak area, which I don't think is ever going to be relevant to me. And then it has knock-on effects for the specific area that I'm really, really interested in and much more focused on. Um, easy example would be, yeah, okay, I, I'm always psyched about climbing overhangs. I never was that psyched about climbing on slabs. And so as a result, I didn't develop particularly good footwork. I was really surprised that when I actually dug in and started practicing slabs a lot more, it actually obviously really helped my overhang climbing because I had better footwork. My feet stayed on. I was more used to weighting them. And suddenly that meant I could climb harder on overhangs than I was before mm. because I was practicing in a style that I was otherwise not that skilled in. I finally now shut up. So <laughs> Back to you, Stephen. No, this is, this is amazing, man. So the dynamic movement, how that, how that indoor style competition kind of fluid, you know, parkour or coordination style relates to potentially outdoor climbing or other styles. That was, you know, one of the key points of my outline. So I want to dig into that. Let's bookmark that and come back to it in two minutes. I just want to share okay. one thought that came to mind while you were oh, talking. Yeah, please, man. yeah, I had, um, you, you were talking about, um, you were talking about compromises. You were talking about building that body awareness on the easy yeah. climbs and realizing, oh, every single move, every single option of how to do every move is a choice and a compromise between these different types of strength. And I think the biggest aha moment for me is um, that's related to that, basically when I learned that lesson, um, I want to share that story because it was a huge takeaway for me at the time or a huge light bulb moment for me. Um, this is probably... This is probably about six or seven years ago, maybe 2016, 2017, something like that. Probably, yeah, 2016. And it was a route that I was trying at Smith Rock called Burlmaster. It's uh, 13C, okay. um, 8A plus. 
And it's just a short, really punchy power endurance, bouldery kind of sprint, you know, maybe, maybe 30 moves, the whole thing, something like that. Uh, very crimpy, very fingery. And the, the final crux move, the red point crux move is like the last bolt, the stinger move where you're coming around the lip and you do a really precise long move to a blind uh, pocket. And it's pretty good. It's a jug, but it's hard to get to it and, and hit it. And the whole spring season, I was trying it, and I, I had found that the easiest way to do the move was to get my body up really high and grab this little three-finger, um, it's like a little nugget, like this little uh, knob pinch, and pull my chest in and go to the move. And I could control the move, but it really taxed. It was really hard on my fingers. It was a very crimpy, yeah. finger-dependent move. And, uh, but it was by far the easiest way to do the move. And I kept trying to climb and I kept falling on that move. I fell on that move probably 20 or 30 times in that spring season. Didn't do the route. It got too hot, walked away for the summer, trained on my home board, whatever. And I thought about it a lot. And I realized that, you know, it was this type of thing where I'd fall on that move. I could do like long links, um, pulling right back on where I had had fallen and do do it to the top and do that move every single time and it felt easy in isolation. But I thought about it all summer and I realized that, oh, there's there's like 15 moves of crimping leading up to that move. And I just don't have the, um, the margin with my fingers to hold that yeah. hold and to stay tight to the wall. And I actually ended up coming back in the fall, changing my beta and doing that move a harder way. It was like a way harder lock off, like a harder shouldery move from a better hold. And practiced that a little bit on my home wall, built a replica, came back to it. It felt harder in isolation, did it like two tries later, you know, did it really quickly. Yeah. And it was this huge light bulb where I was like, wow, that was, you know, if I was just trying to break down every single move on the climb to find the easiest possible way, this is not the way. This is not the easiest yeah. way to do this crux move or the red point crux move, but it's easier on the fingers. And that's the limiting factor for me, uh, given the context of the entire route, which is lots of sustained crimping leading up to that. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that seems really obvious to people, but for me, no, 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 that no. was. I think it's, um, I think it's such a good one to talk about because actually, um, it was only, it was only relatively recently where I was, I was reading about, um, the terms that root setters use when they're describing the nature of challenge that they've included in the boulders they set. Have you heard these terms where root setters won't just talk about the grade of a climb? The risk, intensity, complexity. Yeah, risk, intensity, and complexity. Brilliant. Yeah. So I've Real quickly, I, I, had oh, a, I had an episode with uh, Tande Katillo about this for people that want to oh, go back. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. I'll link to those. Yeah, great conversation. Oh, I, lo- okay. I love that guy. Definitely, folks, go back and listen to that episode with Tonde because I bet that's fascinating. Uh, but just for a quick recap, in case anyone hasn't heard it, um, root setters talk about uh, the challenges that they've included in a boulder uh, in terms of risk, intense, intensity, and complexity. And I think these are far better terms to use than just talking about the number grade of a climb. So they'll talk about risk, meaning how low percentage of the moves. Not they don't mean risk of injury or danger. They mean how easy is it to just slip off and fall off. Uh, intensity, obviously meaning like, oh, how hard do you actually need to try? And then complexity, meaning, okay, well, how much do you need to work out? Root setters having those terms, they need it because they're talking about movement in a lot of depth. But as coaches and as students of climbing, we're also talking about movement in a lot of depth. So I found learning those terms and teaching them to students really, really helpful because then it also explains how 
our different styles of climbing reflect the different choices we make as to how to climb something and then reflect the compromise that we make in terms of strength and skills. So I now realize looking at my climb, I'm like, ah, okay, I choose to climb this boulder differently to the person next to me. I choose to do this massive, silly pogo dino where they're like locking down and crimping and reaching for it and doing all these extra moves to make it a lot more static. I've now realized I can describe that as, okay, I'm choosing to up the risk in order to reduce the intensity and the complexity of the climb. Whereas they're choosing to massively reduce the risk at the expense of using more complexity and more intensity. That's really, really nice because then you can also talk about it really clearly with students going, oh, now we've realized that you always kind of make those choices and those compromises. Now I think we can talk about it clearly going, you're now making much harder choices only based off your existing preferences. What if we change things a bit so you had no preferences and then you just did the moves in the easiest way? Um, so that's another really, really good one to explore with people and then can relate back to that body awareness practice where you're like, ah, now I've realized I always prefer to do moves this certain way. Now I'm aware of that. I'm going to intentionally practice this other style of moving just to even out my preferences a little bit for later mm. in my session. Um, again, so I brought us off on another tangent. You were trying to get us back on track a second ago. Well, no, you actually uh, you, ac you actually brought us right back to what we were talking about before because oh, I'm just... Well, what on me? <laughs> I'm just hearing you and thinking like, well, you're kind of describing me. Like I, you know, I go into the climbing gym and if I see a compy slab boulder... I almost immediately write it off as not relevant, you know, not relevant to my goals, not relevant to uh, the styles in which I prefer to climb, uh, not will, not relevant to the collection of skills that I'm trying to amass to do harder outdoor boulders. And I can just from your, just, you know, from your um, explanation just now, I can immediately see that, okay, if I just practice riskier movements, and again, we're not talking about physical danger risk here, we're talking about mm -hmm precise dead points where if you if you miss it you'll fall off that sort of thing yeah. um slippery feet things like that if i practice that and just get more comfortable with a higher degree of risk then that opens up the opportunity to make beta decisions that are less intense less complex yeah. um, or both in the future on my projects I, I would strongly recommend this Stephen, because actually I, I think about it a lot going oh people often shy away from that riskier more momentum based method of climbing stuff because in their head they're like oh but it it's much riskier i could fall off it like a million times doing that and then if it takes me a million tries to do the riskier beta where i could have done the more intense complex beta in a handful of tries well now on well now which one is more efficient but then i would kind of argue counter that going well the risky method would be so you're saying the risky method would be the most efficient way of doing it provided you don't mess it up okay cool what would be required in your practice for you to get to a point where you just don't mess it up and it mm. only takes you a few tries then you're able to do the the most efficient beta pretty quickly um so that i think that's why i consistently practice this more momentum based style and why why i enjoy doing it so much is because in my head i'm like oh if i wasn't going for the risky method then i need to do something smart or which involves strength whereas <laughs> if i precisely lunge and land in just the right place i don't need to be strong or smart i can just be i can just be relentlessly lucky all the way through my session <laughs> relentlessly lucky i like that yeah you, cr you create your own luck um uh, exactly the more you practice the luckier you get <laughs> I like that. Um, can you just describe, I'm putting you on the spot, but can you describe in more specifics the ways in which you see this style apply to outdoor rock climbing? Because I think that oh, the, the yes. mistake okay. I made I, I for a long sure time... I wasn't sure if you wanted me to 
Yeah, I, w- I wasn't sure if you wanted me to spell that out or not, because uh, we kind of talked about it a second ago. I was like, yeah, okay, let- let's definitely talk about it. I-, I think of it too directly, right? I see the competition slab boulder and I'm like, well, I've never done a move anything like that outside, so I don't need yeah. to practice that. But yeah, I, w- I would love to hear the more subtle ways in which you see those things apply to outdoor rock climbs. Definitely, man. So, okay, um, the inclusion of wild comp style moves like yeah running running jump dinos to two hand catches or paddle dinos or toe hook catches or whatever it might be i will very much agree does not come up as often outdoors whether in the context of bouldering or sport climbing or trad climbing or multi-pitch doesn't come up anywhere near as often as it does in a bouldering competition there you will do a lot of a lot of pogos a lot of paddle dinos a lot of foot plants and all this sort of stuff that being said, it does still sometimes come up in outdoor climbing. Um, there are examples of times where catching a tow hook would be really helpful or paddling into the next hold would be easier than trying to stick the really bad sloper and then reach out to it slowly. Sometimes the moves are intentional. And like at the moment, we're talking about it with this idea of, oh, maybe I was preferring to do it with this more intense and complex beta because the idea of doing it dynamically seemed like such a risky thing to do. But if you are confident with it, then maybe you could just do that slightly riskier move and save yourself a lot of energy for later moves. So sometimes there might be actually useful sequences which you could choose to do dynamically. Um, and I think those do come up, whether that's bouldering or trad climbing or sport climbing, whatever it might be. I'd also say that a really, really um, one that you definitely can't get away from in any discipline of climbing is that a lot of hard moves revolve around a dead point to a bad hold. And depending on how good you are at using momentum, the difficulty of that move can be very, very different. If you mistime the momentum and you land on the hold with a lot of a lot of impact, you have to have really good contact strength. You will have used an excess of strength trying to do that move because you didn't do it as efficiently as you could. Whereas if you time the move perfectly and you generate in just the right way and land really softly on the hold, that feels much, much easier and often makes it go from completely impossible, not strong enough to do this to actually, if I time it well, I am strong enough to do this. And I think if you just think about like, oh, well, how often do I need to dead point to a bad hold? That's definitely in every discipline of climbing. Mm. Um, And then the last one uh, to give us an example is um, if you have, uh, if you've blown it and you're starting to fall, maybe doing some dynamic movement wizardry could help you. I cannot tell you the number of times where I've been falling and I've just instinctively tried to catch a toe hook or put a hand out to try and stop me or whatever it might be and gone, oh, this is exactly the sort of nonsense I practice for competition bouldering. And now it's come up on this slab climb that I was doing in uh, doing outdoors. Uh, I've actually got a specific example that I can think of, which I think illustrates this really, really well. And it brings us neatly back to a climb that we've already talked about in this uh, in this interview. Um, Jack's Broken Heart in, um, in Magic Wood. Um, I'm really interested. I'm going to look up the video that I'm going to reference right after this and see how inaccurate my exaggerated memory of this is. <laughs> but um, have you watched a video of Jan Hoyer, I, I think, flashing this this boulder? Um, I don't believe so, so. I'll try to find oh, it man, for people. Okay, so again, folks, if this is way off, then forgive me. But what I remember happening in this video is Jan Hoyer, who, if anyone doesn't know, he's king of competition bouldering at the time. I think this is right after he'd just finished a round of the World Cup. So in really, really good shape, very well practiced with dynamic movement and momentum and things like that from his competition bouldering. Uh, He went to Magic Wood, tried to flash Jack's Broken Heart, basically did flash it, did all the hard moves, and then found himself on two, uh, two slopers facing the same direction with his heel out to the side, keeping him locked in. Then his heel slips. 
And as I remember it, he completely instinctively just like paddles the next three moves so he can get to the next jug. And he stays on and he comes away with the flash. Wow. Um, and so I was looking at that going, ooh, if he hadn't been practicing doing loads and loads of paddle dinos for competitions, I think he would have dropped the flash just then because the hill would have slipped and he would have had no skills to save it. Mm. Um, now I'm going to look up this video and see how how wildly wrong I am about that. <laughs> Jan Hoyer, uh, Jack's broken heart. If I'm, if I'm completely wrong and this is not what happens in the video, can we um, delete all that section? <laughs> Yeah, if you're wrong, we have to delete the whole podcast. The whole podcast. Straight out. Okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. Um, where's this one? Oh, look, he, he climbs the same board as me. He does He does Riverbed. He does Jack's Broken Heart. It's a classic tick list. <laughs> okay, well, fine. It's not letting me look this up now. So I will email you afterwards saying, delete the whole podcast. I was wrong. <laughs> or, My memory's great. This is exactly what happens. He paddles the whole boulder. Well done me. I was right. Wait, what just uh, happened? You, you, couldn't find, you couldn't find it or load it or... No, I, I can find it, but you've got to log in. Um, it's on it's on Vimeo, and I can't remember my login. Oh. Um, hang on. Okay, well, hang on. If you're site, then I'll keep looking. Hang on. <laughs> Videos. I've got it right here, but... Oh, wait. Is it in... No, that's him That's him in Fontainebleau. Fine. I'm, I'm going to join Vimeo right now so I can watch it. <laughs> oh, that was actually really easy. Well done, Vimeo. <laughs> Okay. Get this. Let's find him on Jack's Broken Heart. This is amazing podcasting. Oh, oh I found it. I'm going to share screen so you can watch it as well. Hang on. Oh, amazing. Oh, do I need to give you permission or something? Let's see here. Okay. He's doing well. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. okay it's it's not quite what i said but it's pretty damn close um actually what i saw was he had basically done it he was in a relatively secure position then his hand slips and he was about to swing off leftwards and completely slip off the slope he had but he reacts pretty fast he tries to catch the hold he slipped off and then simultaneously is going for a foot plant with his other foot he manages to catch the foot plant first, which then allows him to get back to the hold on. Mm. So it's not the wild paddle dino that I was saying in my head. In my head, it was that he like paddled eight moves in a row, because <laughs> that's what memory's like. But it is still a semi-decent example of what I was talking about. <laughs> so, yep, the podcast is safe. We can keep this section in. It's all good. Uh, amazing. For all of you listening, I will find that video and link to it in the show notes with the timestamp. So you can go right to the part that Louis I'll is talking about. I'll send it to you right now, buddy. Perfect. So I want to talk about the on a hazelnut collab that we talked about or that, that we introduced briefly earlier. And I'll link to that one too for you guys. But yeah, in that video, the thing that was really interesting to me is you were teaching her how to do these more flowy, fluid, dynamic movements on these complex slab boulders. Yeah. And the way you broke down movements, I thought was really interesting. As soon as you did it, I was like, oh, obviously that makes perfect sense. But for, you know, for example, going for a move without going for the move, like going for the move just to get your body in the right position and not even trying to actually stick the hold um, and practicing the components of a move before trying to do something so complex and trying to put it together. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, once again, as soon as I saw it, I was like, that's so obvious, you know, of course we should do that. But I was, I've been reflecting on it ever since watching that video and realizing 
I could probably do a lot more of that in my actual rock climbing. And I guess maybe I do instinctively to some degree, but there's so much value in like getting a position and just holding the two holds for a few seconds without trying to latch the next hold or just trying to like see how far you can pull your chest into the wall if you're doing a big powerful move without yeah. trying to latch the next hold, working on the pieces of it before trying to put it all together. But yeah, can you can you talk about how you break down movements and teach them? Yes, I can. Do you mind if I pause very briefly because I am distracted by needing to pee? Uh, and then <laughs> I will come back and give a really good focused answer to this question. Perfect. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rocky Talkie. I love these things. I never thought I'd go back to using radios in the year 2023, but these things are awesome. Here's the deal. We all have phones, but sometimes phones aren't very helpful. Let's say you're climbing a multi-pitch or you're backcountry skiing or sitting on a chairlift and you don't want to drop your phone in the snow or you're mountain biking and it's a pain to stop and get your phone out or you just don't have service. Phones are not always the best option. The best way to communicate in the backcountry is with Rocky Talkies. I've actually been using these for bouldering. I often record interviews in the morning and I go climbing in the afternoon and I want to meet up with my friends and the Rocky Talkies have been awesome when I don't have cell reception. The max range on these things is 25 miles and they typically work up to one to five miles in the mountains and backcountry terrain. I haven't tested the range on these things, but so far they've always worked with zero issues, even in rocky areas like Waco. I've never had a problem. So check them out. Get 10% off your first pair of Rocky Talkies by going to rockytalkie.com slash nugget. That's rockytalkie.com slash nugget for 10% off your first order of backcountry radios. And now back to the show. Uh, right. So uh, you were asking um, breaking down dynamic movement and teaching it and the general methods for it and reasoning behind it. So um, first one I think is um, an interesting one to talk about is the idea of um, seeing movement in a higher frame rate. Um, I don't think this came up in the video Anna and I did. So just talk about it quickly. Cause th this isn't my own idea. This is something I read in, uh, I strongly recommend it folks, a really good book by Josh Waits called the art of learning. Hmm. Um, where you know, it's, or... I just, I listened to a lot of Tim Ferriss and Josh Waitzkin has been on the podcast a few times oh, yeah. and, and I've definitely heard them talk about it, but I've never read the book. So yeah, so I'll check he, it out. He gives this, he gives this really, really useful, um, uh, analogy where he's talking about how, um, okay, I'm not, um, an experienced judo practitioner. If I was shown a video of two experienced judoers, I don't think that's right. No, you can tell I'm not an experienced judo practitioner. So if I was shown a video of two hardcore judo people um, having a sparring match and then suddenly one of them's on the floor, I as an inexperienced uh, person would look at it going, wow, I don't know what happened. Like one minute they were squaring off against each other, then the next second he was just on the floor. I didn't see anything. Whoa, amazing. Whereas an experienced uh, practitioner would look at it and go, no, 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 no. I saw like, a hundred things happen over a short space of time. Mm. He like reached forward, he grabbed him by the wrist, he pulled this way, then he pushed down that way. Like they can see all the small components that go into making that movement happen. Let, now let's talk about dynamic movement. I think a lot of inexperienced climbers will do, will see someone do like a pretty intense coordination move where there's like multiple moving parts and they might look at it going, 
Oh my god, like so much. They just did so much at once. Suddenly, one minute they were there, then they were over there. Whoa, amazing. Then as you practice with dynamic movement more and more, you start being able to see it in a higher frame rate where you're like, no, 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 they first they generated momentum in that position, then they jumped onto that foothold, they balanced there for a second, then they lost balance again towards that one, they pulled here, planted there. I can now see all of the steps that go into making that movement. So then when we're teaching dynamic movement, I think, yeah, as you say, a really, really useful thing to do with students is to get them to the idea that it's not that you're trying to do everything at once. That's really, really hard to do. But actually, very rarely in a dynamic move, do you need to do multiple things at once? You usually need to do you need to do a sequence of movements with the correct timing in the correct order. And if you do the right sequence of moves in the correct order with the correct timing, suddenly it feels really, really easy. If you're concentrating on trying to do everything at once, it does not feel easy. So step one would be, yeah, let's learn what the individual parts of this move are and let's practice each of those individually. So we learn that we're capable of them. We learn what they feel like. And then obviously once you've practiced each individual part of it, it's very easy for me as a coach to go, ah, well, you've now done all the different parts of this move. So we know you're physically capable of doing it. You've done all the different components. Now let's start putting them together. And that it's it's also really good because I can then go at it from a point of we're not trying to do it all at once. I want you to practice step one, which you already practiced. And then after you've done step one, add step two onto the end of it. And then, okay, great. You did step one and two. Now add step three onto the end of that. But don't start thinking about step three until you finish doing step two. You don't need to be doing multiple things at once, just doing them in the right order. Also found a lot of the time with dynamic movement, uh, the better you get at hitting certain dead point positions or certain body positions on the climb, the more opportunities you have to slow down and balance in different positions, which then gives you more time to think about the other things you need to do. So yeah, I do a lot of practice with dynamic movement. And one of the main ones I'll get people practicing is just breaking it down into smaller, more digestible chunks, practicing it in uh, in those chunks, and then building it into a longer sequence. Mm. Um, confusingly, though, one of the other ones I struggle with with teaching dynamic movement is, um, uh, yeah, kind of that idea we just talked about. Of if they're trying to think about doing a bunch of things at once, it's actually really hard to do any of them correctly because they're thinking about five different things. So a lot of the time with dynamic movement, one of the things I'm trying to teach people is just to confidently go for it and not worry about the details too much. Mm. So we often practice like different things in different sessions. One session, it might be intensely looking at the details. And the next session, it will be forget about all the details, assume your body knows how to do it and just throw yourself at it with confidence. And then we'll make adjustments from there. Mm. Um, Because a lot of the time I really do try and get people onto this idea of even if you're not really confident with dynamic movement itself, everyone from a young age has been like running and jumping and catching balls and falling over and catching themselves and generally our bodies are actually a lot more equipped with muscle memory hand-eye coordination all of these like pretty cool skills that happen naturally if you're not overthinking certain movements but require confidence for you to allow that sort of thing to happen it's difficult getting that working and a lot of the time if i watch someone do a dynamic move and i'm like oh yeah okay they're asking what they can do differently and i can see like 10 small details which would all make a little bit of a difference how helpful is it for me to point out all of those details to that student that actually might not help in their actual performance of the move what might be more helpful is me just saying you were basically there try it again a little bit more confidently maybe go for a little bit softer over there and a little bit harder over there trying to pick apart the smaller details sometimes can be a bit of a tricky one so um yeah i'm <laughs> kind of contradicting myself in two different ones of yes definitely practice the small details but also don't worry about the details just go for it both will work mm. 
I think practicing both of those styles is kind of the more useful one. Yeah, practicing both and combining them, that's that's really interesting. Um, I'd never really thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense. One of my favorite skill learning books is actually a tennis book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Have you have you read that? He's, he's clapping. The, the main recommendation I make to so many students. Matt, <laughs> it's so it's, good, right? It's helped me. Oh, my God. It's helped me so much with um, understanding performance mindset a little bit more. Uh, it's also, I think, really, really helped with my coaching. Um, he, uh, Tim Galway. Oh, wait, is it Galway or Gallsworthy? I think it's Galway. Galway, yep. Yeah. So just very quickly, folks, if you haven't read this book, you really should. It's really it's, short. It's a quick read. It's great. I was really surprised by how short it was. Like, I ordered it on Amazon on the recommendation from a friend. And then when it arrived, I was like, it's like 100 pages. And it's like a, it's like the size of a small notebook. That, how can this be that good? And it's also called The Inner Game of Tennis. Like, I don't see how it's going to apply to climbing. Folks, can't recommend it enough. Just get the book. Replace the word tennis with the word climbing. <laughs> it works just fine. It is solid gold. It's so, so good. Um, yeah, one of the things that Tim Galway pointed out in that, which I um, I really, really hung on to, and it's really affected my own coaching, is this idea that um, experienced practitioners don't know what's best for other people. I think this is this is definitely happening in climbing, but it happens in a lot of other sports. And obviously, Tim Galway talks about it in tennis, where initially, when it's a young sport, coaches are searching for information that they can pass on to students. And so they'll ask an experienced tennis player, okay, well, how do you do it? What do you do that works? And the pro tennis player will tell them, oh, well, I, I do exactly this. This is how it works for me. So the coach will go, oh, great. This is what an experienced person does. Copy, paste, let me teach it to the beginners. And it being done by a high-level uh, performer doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best way of doing it, as proven by Captain Cutloose himself flailing around on loads of hard climbs. Just because it works to me doesn't mean it is the best way of other people learning it. Now, and it's exactly as Tim Galway points out in his book, I know what feels best to me through many, many hours of practice and understanding how my body works and what feels best and what sort of preferences I have for my own climbing. I've learned what works best for me through all that practice. I have very little idea what's going to feel best for other people. So I'm now really careful when I'm coaching because this is not how I used to be. When I was younger, I'd go like, well, I'm an experienced climber. This is how I do the V4. So it must be the best way. Copy exactly what I do and you will learn the best way of doing the V4. And now I've learned, I'm like, no, 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 no. I know what feels best to me. They will learn what feels best to them through careful practice and experimenting. And eventually they'll work out what feels best to them. And it might be completely different to what feels best to me. So I'm now quite careful as a coach not to get people just copying what I do. Um, but Tim Galway also points out that really cool idea about... Um, not overthinking uh, certain things and actually all that stuff that I was saying of like oh, our bodies are like really well equipped with hand-eye coordination and muscle memory and all this sort of stuff that's almost coming directly from the inner game of tennis it's such a good one mm. and can we just do a whole episode about the inner game of tennis <laughs> sure sure we can we can just read it we can just have louis read it and we'll just uh, put out the different chapters on the podcast. I've got a good reading voice. I can do a, I can do a nice narration for you. We'd probably get sued, actually. I probably can't do that. Uh, but yeah, highly recommend. I'll link to it in the show notes for people. Definitely pick up a copy. It's it's short. It's quick to read. I've read it multiple times. I've, I've actually bought a bunch of used copies and given them away to friends. And <laughs> Yeah, I've got like five copies nice. <laughs> that I've given out to students. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but that's interesting. So um, I, the reason I brought it up is because my takeaway, my biggest takeaway from the book was really to get out of your thinking brain when you're trying to do a highly skilled thing. And it seems contradictory, but you can work on the skill, like you're saying, by breaking down pieces, working on the fundamentals. But then when you're actually trying to coordinate a complex movement, 
get out of your thinking brain, get into your body, get really present and just your body, it's like a miracle. Your body has this amazing ability to just put all those little pieces together. And it, it's all, it almost seems like magic. It's like, we don't even know how it's doing that, or it's almost like you can't even take credit he, for it. Like explains it. it's incredible. Yeah. He explains it so well. And I, I usually just think about the, um, the analogy of, oh, if someone, if someone like throws something to me and I don't have time to think about it properly and I just like react really quickly, you've seen those videos of mm. people like instinctively catching something and then like testing out like, am I, am I Spider-Man? Like, <laughs> how, how did I do that? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the time, yeah, when you don't have time to think about it and your body just reacts with the hand-eye coordination and muscle memory it has, your body can do some pretty awesome stuff. Then I think about like, oh, if someone throws something to me from a distance and everyone's watching, I have to think really carefully like, oh my God, don't drop it. It's going to be so embarrassing. So much more likely to ham it up and drop it, even though it's an easier catch and I've got more time to think about mm -hmm. it. So yeah, I think about that idea a lot of, uh, I bet my body already knows how to do all this awesome stuff. I need to kind of like let it do it rather than trying to force it to do it or think about making it do it or anything like that. But oh, tricky one to get to. Read the book, folks. Mm. Life-changing stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Okay, where to go next? I want to, well, let me check in with you. Do you have a hard out in 20 minutes? I think I might have a hard out in like 10. 10 minutes. Okay. Sorry. No, man. it's fine. It's fine. Okay. That's... Do you want to, we could do a pause at like the halfway and and then pick this up again next week or uh, or later this week and make it in, and like then mush it together as a, <laughs> as a single parter. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we could do that. We could definitely do that. I mean, I love talking to you. I'd love to have you back on. Let's, uh, let's just wrap this one. Um, that and just, great. just have it be its own episode. I, you know, you're always welcome back on. I'd love to talk to you again. And we can either put that out as just like a part two, or we can do a follow-up sometime. Um, let's, wow. let's just see what makes sense, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, so let's try, and, let's try and get this wrapped as a single episode. Then I like, what, it. what should we end on? I, I have a couple ideas. I'll just put them out there and you tell me what would be most interesting to spend our final 10 minutes on. But you teased us earlier by saying you're really busy with coaching these days and you only have about one, two hour session per week. I wanted to ask you what you choose to spend that time focusing on. Cause I think that could be really relevant for, people yeah. listening that have full-time jobs and limited training time. Um, so that's one yeah. thing we could talk about. We could also totally pivot. We could talk about some of the other things on your list, which is the value of um, or important skills for coaches to develop or things to look for in a coach. Mindset, positivity, optimis you know, optimism, enthusiasm. Uh, you exemplify those things. And uh, it was interesting to learn that that's, those are things that you've actually really worked on to cultivate in your life. Imposter syndrome. That's another thing I have on my list. Lots of lots of different no, things. Really not enough time. I'm struggling with imposter syndrome just for this podcast. I've repeatedly gone. Like, I'm sorry. I talk so much. Oh, you probably hate me, but I'll I'll stop talking now. I'm sorry. Um, I, I I think um let, let's talk about um cultivated positivity and its effects on climbing or cultivated confidence and how it can affect our performance because I I think that's a really interesting one. Um, but I, I can answer your question quickly on like oh what do I do in my own sessions? Perfect. Um. I usually um, warm up by practicing a lot of uh, precision and fluidity. Uh, I'll do that on easy boulders, and I'm literally just intentionally climbing them with the most fluid sequences and really thinking about my precision on the holds. So I try to climb with as much momentum as possible, but also as gently as possible while I'm doing that. And to me, that usually ends up with a really, really nice uh, floaty sequence. After a few minutes of that, I'm usually feeling pretty warm, and I start getting onto harder and harder climbs. Um, I usually set myself pretty hard challenges where I'm like, okay, 
here is the new set of boulders that I've not tried before. I'm going to try my best to flash all of them. And I'll try it. This is a really good way of me practicing my execution skills, but also it means I climb a wide variety of styles and difficulty of boulders. Um, then once I've gone through all of that, I'll usually go back around going, okay, which ones gave me the most trouble? Either the ones which I didn't manage to flash or ones which were supposedly at lower grades, but I found really, really hard. And I'll then spend a good long while learning how to make those feel easier. Mm. Um, they're usually not the really powerful basic ones. Those ones are okay for me. They're usually the more subtle climbs with weirder body positions that I then want to practice a lot more. Uh, if there's any moves that I fell off, I'm, if it's like a dynamic one, I might repeat it a bunch of times just to build a bit more consistency with it. But the main bulk of my session is usually spent on, okay, I've flashed all the other boulders, but this V6, I don't know if it's just that it's graded weirdly or if it's a specific style that doesn't suit me, but I'm finding this really hard and I want to learn how to make it not feel hard just in case I end up in a competition and I just get a whole set of that style. I want to not have wished I'd practiced it previously. I want to practice it now so I'm better at it for later. Um, but that's also something that I've tried to train myself to do is to be like really, really psyched about the idea of just making progress on something. So a lot of the time in my sessions, I'm mostly just motivated by the idea of like, oh, okay, where am I going to get the most progress? And usually it's, okay, well, I, I suck the most at that. So if I practice that, I'll get to make loads of progress on it and that will benefit me loads. It'll be really, really exciting. Um, so I spend a lot of my time practicing just more subtle styles of climbing, not just the burly stuff. Then I have other sessions where it's just warm up and do as much of this new set on the, uh, on the training board as I can. Um, and then I'll have third sessions where I'm just coming in explicitly just to do really hard projects that I've got left on training boards. Mm. So it varies quite a lot, but a lot of time it's wanting to practice the areas that I don't feel as skilled in. That's what I put a lot of time into nowadays. Um, but then very briefly, that almost segues us onto the idea of um, teaching ourselves to be really, really positive and really confident about stuff. Um, um, Steve and I talked about this uh, in like a pre-chat before we did the podcast where we were talking about like mindset for climbing. And I remember you saying, yeah, you were quite surprised to hear that I don't necessarily view myself who's just innately positive about everything and really enthusiastic and really, really confident, particularly with confidence. Actually, I'd say I'm, I'm not naturally confident with things. Um, I, I feel sometimes quite nervous and anxious about things. I'm, I'm obviously like, yeah, very extroverted and I do a lot of stuff on YouTube and I'm, I'm doing a podcast right now. But simultaneously, I'm like deeply worried about like, oh my God, what if all the stuff I'm saying is really, really stupid? And what if all the videos I'm putting out are like really embarrassing and no one watches them or everyone watches them, and they think I'm an idiot. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I overthink things a lot more than I need to. That then makes me feel really nervous. And I've now seen in all my coaching that I do, man, people would climb so much harder if they were just injected with confidence. Like a lot of the time, like I think about like, oh, what, what would help this person the most? Or what would help all of the climbers that I work with the most? Yeah, if they were stronger, that would be really, really helpful. If not for everyone though, actually for some people, like they could do with being less strong. That would help them more. Mm. Um, other people, I think, yeah, if they were more refined on that technique, that on their technique, that would definitely help. For literally everyone, I think it really clearly that if they literally were just choosing to be more confident all the time, they would go up by like two grades straight away. Mm. So just to explain that idea, because I think a lot of people, especially when I first started learning about this, I was like, what, just be more confident and you just magically climb better. Sounds like nonsense to me. 
Um, I used to think it was nonsense as well. And now here I am explaining it to other people going, no, makes a really, really big difference. I spent a lot of time focusing on this with students in my sessions. Um, so this will save me a huge amount of time. People can just listen to this podcast and they don't need to come for sessions with me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I go first for the, the really, really um, logical idea that, and I want to explain it clearly to people, that if you're choosing to be more confident, you will outright have a higher success rate than your less confident counterparts. So let's just go into that idea a little bit more, just so everyone's on the same page. Let's imagine, Stephen, that you have two hypothetical climbers who are completely equal in strength and skill. The only thing they're not equal in is their levels of confidence. One of them is really, really confident for no particular reason, and the other is not as confident for no particular reason. They both get onto the same climb. Which of them is going to try it for longer? Um, which of them is going to try harder? obviously the more confident climber they're going to try it harder they're going to try for longer and they're eventually going to end up doing it literally just because they were more confident and then because they did it that then reinforces that confidence and then they get onto another boulder and they try harder and they try for longer and they end up doing that as well having confidence like that literally becomes like a self-fulfilling uh, a, a positive cycle mm. and in the same way doubting yourself a little bit can also become a, a pretty negative cycle because whilst i was describing that hypothetical confident climber trying hard enough that they eventually do it and then it reinforces their confidence they go and try something else their less confident counterpart despite being just as strong and just as technically skilled would try the boulder with a bit more doubt as to whether or not they're going to do it then it feels quite hard so they doubt even more that they're going to do it and then after a few goes they end up saying you know actually yeah i'm, I'm not strong enough to do this it, clearly as proven by me trying it five times and not doing it i'm not able to do this one so i'm going to walk away i was right to doubt myself i won't get back on another like v5 or six i'm clearly not able to do that sort of stuff and you can really clearly see how one climber's progress is going to carry on going and going literally just because they're being more confident with it and going after it and less confident climbers don't end up performing as well so okay we're now on the same page that being more confident equates to a higher success rate i hope anyway for me that's like a pretty logical explanation where i'm like oh you just try harder and you try for longer cool um then i also think about the amount of confidence and patience that it must take high level climbers to do like okay you see all these people working on burden of dreams at the moment the uh, v17 which is i think soon to see its second repeat it seems like um, it yeah Man, I think when we look at um, when we look at um, high level climbers doing really really hard cutting edge climbs, what often stands out to us when we watch the videos is like, oh wow, they're they're so strong. Look at the size of the holds they're they're gripping. Oh my god, that's mad. Or they're so technically skilled. Wow, it's 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 amazing to see how easy and fluid they make the moves look. The thing you don't see in the videos, which I think is the most impressive part of all of it, is the level of confidence and patience it takes to work at the same climb session session over session over session sometimes for years and at no point well, actually i'm sure they do doubt it a little bit but they somehow have the confidence to bear with thousands and thousands of fail attempts in the eventual hope that eventually it's going to pay off like that takes a lot of confidence especially also knowing like oh no one has done this before no mm. one's proven it's possible but i'm going to prove that it's possible like oh my god the level of confidence that takes is outrageous and i don't think people realize how much um how much of the mental side uh challenges people when they're working on hard projects like that because yeah when you're working on a hard climb it requires that you fall off it hundreds thousands of times before you eventually do it if while you're going through that process you're conf you're constantly thinking about how oh yeah i'm i'm probably not going to be strong enough to do it oh it's really painful on my hands oh it's i don't think i'm able to do this at all you're probably not going to get through those hundred attempts and you don't find out if you're able to do it 
if you're relentlessly enthusiastic about any tiny bit of progress you're making or any um, any slight improvement or just how much you're enjoying the climb and that it's fun just to be out there working on it, keeping that positive, confident mindset makes it easier to try it for longer and then you end up having that delayed success. So all that to say, because this is now like a rambly point, which I'm trying to make concise enough to fit into 10 minutes. <laughs> um, I found that practicing being intentional with my language has done absolute wonders for my performance as a climber so i'll try not to talk about this for too long but if we're kind of all now on the same page that keeping a confident mindset means that i have more success as a climber okay how do we keep that confident mindset i think a great deal of that is done by being intentional with the language we use uh, in my coaching sessions i'm like a real pain about this i'm like really really strict about the, i'm very careful about the language i use when i'm coaching somebody because uh, i'm aware of how much of an impact that can have i'll give an example of that in a minute uh, but then i'm also really strict about the language i let students use in a session because i'm also very aware of the impact it has on their mindset and their performance so okay an example of how i'm really careful about how i would phrase things as a coach when i was younger I used to bring students over to a project I wanted them to work on. And I'd usually say something like, oh, I think you're going to absolutely smash this one. And in my head, I was like, oh, no, this is, that's a nice phrase. I wanted to give them confidence. I'm, I'm saying that they, they, they sh they're going to try really hard. It's going to be fun. But actually, the subtext of what I was saying and the expectations I was setting for the student are me saying, oh, yeah, come over here. I think you're going to smash this one. And actually, what I'm saying is, I expect you to find this climb easy. Mm. You should expect to find this climb easy. And then obviously, they get on it and go, this doesn't feel easy at all. I'm now failing my coach's expectations. I'm failing my own expectations. I'm now not performing on it very well. So now as a coach, I'm very careful to bring students over to a climb saying, let's try this climb together. I think it'll be really fun. And there's no expectation of whether or not they're supposed to do it. All that I've said is I'm expecting that we're going to try hard and have fun and learn stuff. That's it. It usually means they feel a bit more relaxed. They're expecting to try hard. Their performance on the climb is then a little bit better because I'm quite careful about the phrase I'm choosing. Likewise, I've found... Um, I used to be really, really harsh with myself in my inner monologue. Um, I don't know if you, you probably do this as well. And it's actually something he talks a lot about in the inner game of tennis again, that um, usually if I, if I fell off a climb that I, that I knew I could do, um, I would berate myself when I fell off. I go, no, Louis, you idiot. Come on. What are you doing? Just grab the hold. What, why are you doing? Why did you fall off it again? What a fool. And I'd say all that stuff to myself. And then in the inner game of tennis, it pointed out like, oh, why don't you speak that way to your students? <laughs> and I was like, well, what a horrible way to talk to somebody. Imagine in a coaching session, if they fell off something and I went, you idiot, Stephen, come on, what are you doing? Obviously the effect of that would be that you would feel less confident and you would feel a bit upset and you'd probably then perform a little bit worse. And so then when I read through all that, I was like, oh, by saying that sort of stuff to myself, I'm, I'm impacting my performance. I'm making myself perform worse. I know yet that inner monologue who's being like really, really strict, he he does want the best for me and he's trying to help but he's not going about it in the most productive way it's actually counterintuitive to what i want so i've spent a lot of energy over the last few years trying to like retrain the way myself and my inner monologue interact and it's a slow process but i've gone from my inner monologue yelling at me and berating me every time i fall off something to actually feeling like i'm coaching myself and when i fall off instead of going you idiot louis in my head i'll go Nice try, Louis. Okay, I wonder what we can do differently here. Mm. And then the net effect of that is I've, I don't feel frustrated. Well, I'm sure I still do. I'm sure you've all seen me at the wall still getting frustrated about stuff. But for the most part, I feel a lot less frustrated. I feel a lot more focused. I feel like I'm enjoying my sessions more. And overall, I'm then staying in a better mindset. I'm having more success throughout my sessions. 
And all of it comes initially from just an awareness of the sort of phrases that I'm using and the impact they might have on my mindset to then adjusting those phrases regularly. And I've got, we won't do this now because I've got loads of examples of phrases that I used to say to myself mm. and what I nowadays replace them with to mean I maintain a better mindset. Um, but now trying to wrap this up quickly, I implore you folks, start paying attention to the phrases you're saying to yourself. Start asking yourself, is that phrase A, helping me perform better? And B, is it even true? Because a lot of the time it's not. A lot of the time we say some really harsh stuff and we think it's true and it's not true. Um, so being aware of the stuff you're saying and replacing it with more proactive alternatives is a really, really good one. I'll give a, a final example and I will shut up. Um, <laughs> I used to say to myself, and actually this it almost brings us beautifully back full circle to where we started. Um, I didn't used to be the best at climbing slabs. And I used to tell myself that all the time. I used to talk in what I now realize are really fixed minded phrases where I'd say, I am a really bad slab climber. Whenever I try to climb a slab, my feet just slip off. Every time I try and climb a slab, I I'm just rubbish at it. I never get any better. And okay, that's all fine. Because in my head, I thought that was true. But actually, the result of what I was saying was, well, why would I practice this? Because everything I've just said has described me as this innately bad slab climber. And if I'm innately bad at it, if I'm innately bad at it, why would practicing it help anything? Mm -hmm. So if what I really, really needed was to just get on a slab and start practicing, um, I wasn't doing that because I was telling myself all the time that it wasn't going to help. And then on the rare occasion that I did get onto a slab and practice a little bit, what I needed was just open-minded concentration on learning. And instead, most of my head was full up with those repeated phrases of, you're rubbish at slab climbing, your feet are going to slip any second. And then the result was that because I was worried about my feet slipping, I'd then pull harder on the handholds, then the weight would come off my feet and they would slip and I'd fall off the slab. And I'd then walk away going, see, I told you I'm a terrible slab climber, never going to get any better at this. I didn't, to be clear, folks, change that with the phrase of suddenly saying, instead of saying, I'm a terrible slab climber, suddenly lying to myself and saying, oh, I'm the best slab climber in the world. Everything's great. And that, that's not what I did at all. All I did was change it for the, I think, growth, set, uh, growth mindset focused phrase and the much truer phrase of, I'm interested to practice some slabs and make some progress. Mm. And as soon as I started saying that to myself, instead of, I am an innately bad slab climber, I started practicing more, then I made some progress. And then that got really exciting. So I practiced more. And now here I am not being a terrible slab climber anymore. <laughs> and all of that was kind of unlocked for me when I just changed a bit of phrasing that I was regularly using to a just more open-minded alternative. So I'll stop wittering away about it now, but I think it's really, really important. I'd really recommend you focus on it, team. Um, aside from that, okay, cool. I'll now shut up. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Louis, you are an excellent podcast guest. It, I don't feel it, but that's really kind of you. Thank you, man. It's a great quality in a podcast guest that they're just going on and on and dropping really helpful information. Um, oh, man, I had this, um, I, I did a load of like uh, live Q&As during lockdown um, where I'd have like guests on. And I noticed the same thing. I was like, I'm just praying for someone who just comes onto the Zoom call and just won't shut up for a whole hour. That is so easy for me. <laughs> Whereas occasionally I had a, uh, a guest who like just answered in one word answers to all the questions I had. And after like 10 minutes, I was like, Man, I'm out of questions. You either <laughs> answered yes or no to all of them. Now what? Um, so, yay, I'm glad that my uh, nonstop battling is what you wanted for this podcast. Hooray. That was great. I um, hope people listening found it interesting. Um, am I supposed to... Yeah, should I just say goodbye now? I <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> 
that would be such a gangster move. I love it. Um, well, I, I, I know I know you have to go. I know we've already pushed past your ten minutes, so I will let you go. I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was really really enjoying that. This, flew by. That flew by. That was awesome. Let's do another one. I would love to have you back on, and we can dive even deeper into some of these things that we just tease people with. But I think that was a ton for people to take away. Uh, in wrapping up, just remind people where they can find you, what you've got going on that you're excited to share with people, and how we can support you. Plugs. Yeah, give me your plugs. What yeah, are you up to? Plug away, okay. Um, so, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Captain Cutloose. Um, I'm doing a lot on YouTube at the moment, but that's not uh, with my own YouTube channel. That's the Catalyst Climbing YouTube channel. We bring out videos every week. If you want to get training plans uh, for movement practice and off-the-wall training as well from myself and Neil Gresham, uh, go to the Catalyst YouTube channel and click the Join button. You can find out all about that. Aside uh, so from that, follow Catalyst Climbing on Instagram. Um, and oh, I feel like that's all of them there. Yeah, I've talked about Catalyst. I've talked about me. I've talked about YouTube. Those are all the good things. Come give us a follow. There's loads of fun content, loads of cool things to learn. Uh, I'll see you all there. Thank, thanks so much for having me, by the way, Stephen. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'd be honored to come back sometime. But let's see if let's see if the listeners can stand it. Like <laughs> if they're all saying, like, no, don't get that guy back, then I'll stay away. I'll stay away. You can just come and see me if you want to on YouTube. But if you liked it, folks, then let Stephen know. I'd love to come back and do this again. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Why are you laughing so much? It's putting me off. <laughs> You're killing me, man. No, I love it. I love it. I, I loved it. My pleasure to have you on. I hope you have an amazing coaching session. Thanks so much for your time. I took a ton away. I'm sure people listening did as well. And for you guys listening that are new to the podcast, I make it easy for you. I put everything in the show notes at The Nugget Climbing. There's a link right there in your podcast app. If you scroll down, go over there. Links to all things Louie and Catalyst, all the videos that we talked about, the books we talked about, all the links will be right there, conveniently organized for you. So check it out. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, Louie. Have a great evening. And uh, I'll talk to you again. Talk to you again soon. See you later, buddy. All right. Bye. Hey friends, a few quick reminders before you go. First thing, The Nugget is now on YouTube. We're sharing some of my favorite clips from the podcast in eight minute long videos. And they're super cool. I'm really proud of how these things are turning out. And the YouTube channel is a great way to sample other episodes before diving into a two hour podcast. And it's a great way to revisit some of your favorite nuggets from the show. Just search for The Nugget Climbing on YouTube. I also put a tremendous amount of effort into the show notes for every episode. You can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com. If you ever want to learn more about a guest or watch the videos or buy the books we talked about or see the Instagram posts we talked about or whatever it is, you can find links to all of the things in the show notes for each episode at thenuggetclimbing.com including links to all of my sponsors. Thanks again to all of my sponsors for this episode. You can check them out in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. You'll find a list of sponsors for this episode and their coupon codes, or just scroll down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to have great deals on some of my favorite products. Again, just scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the list of sponsors in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Finally, if you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes that I've published so far with past guests from the show with more bonus episodes coming all the time. They're called follow-ups. Follow-ups are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You'll get access to all of those and ad-free versions of the regular episodes 
as well as uncut video interviews if you prefer to watch the video. All of that for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. And there's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. I appreciate all of your support. I hope you're having an amazing week and we will see you next time.